Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? This is Young Lion King Carl Fredericks, and you're listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy Josh Smith. On today's show, we're reviewing nights 15 through 19 of the G1 Climax 30, answering your questions and covering all the latest news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing to the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping a strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, prosanteescom slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your Official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by the NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level, visit njpwext.us today for details. Young boy, we did it, man. G1 Climax 30 in the books. 91 matches. 91 times where I came, I saw, and then I conquered, and then I forgot what happened. <laughs> <laughs> 91 ratings, takes, and opinions. Yeah, ratings, takes, and opinions are not a game. (laughs) Serious business. Yeah. But here we are, man. Uh, You know, three years going. We covered all this shit. It's kind of crazy. And uh, we'll get into it because I am shocked. There's a lot of things that we said going into this G1 that proved to be true. A lot of things that we said, especially me, that proved to be untrue. Um, so we definitely need to kind of discuss all that and kind of unload, you know, what this means, what happened, what it means going forward. Uh, a lot of things happening here. 
Yeah, definitely a lot to go over here, and so we'll get jumped into it in just a second. Before we kind of break into the blocks and the coverage of the finals, just real quick, your overall thoughts of the last few nights of the G1 and kind of how everything kind of shook out here. I really think um, you kind of have to grade this G1 sort of on a curve just given the circumstances and the situations with the crowds and the global pandemic that we kind of gone through um, just a lot of variables there, but overall as a tournament, this was a super enjoyable tournament. Maybe uh, I would say probably definitely the best thing in major pro wrestling this year um, as it often is with the G1. That being said, um, I would still say that this is definitely at least over the course of maybe definitely since at least the 2014 tournament, my opinion, the lowest end tournament they've had. Um, but a lot of it is due to what I mentioned earlier. Um, the blocks themselves, um, prob- like the A block match nights were awesome. The B block nights were kind of down and that really played out over the last couple nights here. Now, the good news, there was a lot of intrigue on both sides of the blocks where you had, you know, like five people, uh, four people essentially alive in the A block on the last few nights and then like five people alive going into the last few nights of the B block and then it kind of dwindled itself down. Um, So there's a lot of intrigue with, you know, the way the matches might unfold, who's going to, you know, go through, which is kind of what you want out of these tournaments. But at the same time, some of those B block shows were kind of, I don't want to say abysmal, but they were just not up to the same standard as the A, as what a block was putting out there. So it was always kind of a slog for me to kind of get through those. Just being honest. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's one thing where, you know, you're, you've got the a block night, you're getting, you know, two to three notebook matches per a block show. And then, you get to the B block show and like the high is maybe like three and a half, maybe 3.75. And it's just kind of not in the same level as the A block. I mean, they did tell some good stories in the B block, but you talk about, you know, comparing bell to bell in ring action. Um, the A block was where it's at. And, you know, um, after, you know, towards the end of the show, we'll get to our top 10 matches of the tournament. And you'll see that majority of those matches come from the A block. Yeah, it was hard, man. I mean, if I wanted to watch, a, you know, a two-hour show with a bunch of like three and a half, three-star matches, I would watch, you know, Dynamite. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's TV wrestling. That's that's about. Oh, oh you're gonna no sell me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like Dynamite's having like four-star, four and a half matches every week. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if I if I wanted, you know, a show where they didn't do that, I go watch Dynamite. <laughs> Open open the forbidden door. <laughs> Close that forbidden door. It's forbidden for a reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, overall, really enjoy the tournament. Really like the last few nights. Like you mentioned, I love the fact, especially in the A block, where down to the very last night, there were still multiple people alive. There were still multiple scenarios that had to kind of play out. You kind of your suspense was kind of built out throughout the whole show. You know, wondering who was going to win that A block. Once we got down to the final B block night, it was pretty clear on, you know, kind of what they were setting up. And, you know, there's only, you know, three guys alive there on that side and kind of what was going on there. Um, but overall, yes, just some great stuff. And we'll get into it here. 
But first, we've got to talk about the C block with our young Lions here. They had their last four matches here, nights 15 through 18. So on night 15, we had Yomura defeating Gabriel Kidd. Night 16, we had Suji defeating Yomura. On night 17, we had Suji defeating Gabriel Kidd. And then on night 18, we had Gabriel Kidd defeating Yomura. But on night 17, with Suji's defeat over Gabriel Kidd, he had it locked down. My prediction was correct. Our C block champion for this year, the big man, Yota Suji. You know, I feel at the end of this that maybe this shit didn't exist all to, at all. You know, they were saying like it was unofficial. Maybe it was really unofficial because if I was Gato and I was booking this out, I wouldn't have Suji lock up the block on night 17. Like, I don't think that like anyone in New Japan actually cared about this E-block. They were just like, all right, well, uh, we'll give the guys some wins each night. Oh, that night we'll do a draw. You know, and then you're thinking like, oh, the points are going to really, really matter. Nope. Suji wins it. <laughs> That's it. Got one more night to go. I was like, oh, so maybe this shit wasn't real to begin with. It's almost like, I don't know. It's like someone was deciding what happens. Like it's not in the up and up. Something's not right. Are here. you trying to say this was not a shoot, sir? I feel like maybe this was, you know. Are you are you are you saying that Yota Suji did not did not deter, did not earn his victory? He did not earn his C Block Championship. Is that what you're trying to tell me right now? <laughs> I'm just saying something seemed fishy here. <laughs> <laughs> so overall thoughts on the Young Lions, this G1, and what they did here. I don't want to spend too much time because we got a lot to get into, but uh, we've kind of said it over the past few weeks. My main thing is these three guys went out there every single night. They brought it. They told intense, great wrestling action stories. I know there was noticeable marked improvements in their styles of wrestling each and every single time that they went out there. And um, looking forward to what the future holds for them. Although not totally sure how excited I can be for the future after seeing Watto and uh, another man uh, make his return. I don't know. You know. If I'm a young lion, I don't know if I want to go on this excursion. I come back. It just seems different. It's not right. But uh, like, you know, we got a couple young lions that just came back. They seem better before they ever left to begin with. Um, one thing though, one last thing, Yota Suji has now embraced his 1970s, 1980s, uh, aesthetic and has incorporated the big swing mm, in, yes. into his maneuvers uh his moveset and now he uses that as the setup for his jumping back uh you know or backbreaker boston crab so uh, really liking that from him yeah overall young lions you know killed this tournament um i love the fact that they were able to wrestle every night they got so much experience you know also you know the young lions and here in the U.S., or they're wrestling in front of an empty arena, and it's a totally different thing when you're wrestling in front of a crowd. Even though they can't cheer, it's still a, that live crowd, that atmosphere, kind of a big match, you know, in bigger arenas. And so I thought it was a great experience for, you know, Suji Yumura and Gabriel Kidd. Um, thought all three of them looked really good. Um, again, Gabriel Kidd was kind of a standout to me just because I was kind of low on him. When he first came in on a scene here, I thought he looked looking really great towards the end of the tournament, kind of implying some of that kind of British style. That last match with him and Yuromoro, there was a lot of great chain wrestling in that match. And, yeah, these guys were looking great. Bro, I'd be ashamed if I was Gabriel Kidd, been on the scene as long as he has, getting uh, 
beaten by by these two young young boys. I don't know about all that. Well, he he had to you know forget everything that he learned and start start from scratch. <laughs> he, was, he, he couldn't pull out the stuff he was you know doing on the indies. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, this stuff was really good. I I I'm looking forward to what the future holds for these guys. These three guys in particular: Suji, Yumura, and Gabe Kidd. You know, we got uh, award season coming up. This might be a feud of the year contender <laughs> with the amount of time that you guys have fought each other. Hey, yeah. I think I'm pretty sure we had uh, Suji Yamora as a feud of the year last year. I think it was going to be on the ballot, but like it got edged out no, and maybe I, it didn't quite no, I, make I, it. I think it made the ballot. Oh, uh, was it like a was it one of those situations where like you kind of just snuck it in there under under my nose, I didn't realize it was there. No, I feel, I'll, I'll have to look back and see, but I, I'm pretty sure that we we snuck on uh, more. I, I know, Suji I know right. how it is. You know, <laughs> I got Cody versus uh, Aldis on on the ballot one year. You know, so you traded that in. You got you more and Suji on. I get it. <laughs> I mean, those guys did wrestle like I don't know, like twenty. I don't know how how many times last year. <laughs> hey, here's the crazy thing. Suji gave Kid and Yumura might win feud of the year. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll oh, get right. into that later. But uh, let's talk about these blocks, man. So we've got uh, 20 guys, two blocks. The tournament's over, but we still got three, four nights, three nights to cover. We got, we got four nights. So we'll start oh, here at the, we'll start the A block. We'll, t- we'll talk about nights 15 and 17. Obviously, night 17 was the A block finals. So we'll start at the top here with the golden star, Kota Ibushi. Obviously, spoiler alert, Kota Ibushi is the A-block winner. He's the G1 Climax 30 champion. Um, we'll get to that. We'll, let's talk about his path here to you know the finals. So on night 15, he defeated Yujiro Takahashi, 12 minutes, 28 seconds. And then on night 17, he defeated Taichi, 17 minutes and 12 seconds on that last A-block night. Uh, well, we're going to try and keep it short here for you guys because we want to get through all the content. There's a lot to discuss. Uh, but my basic thoughts, he gave Yujiro one of the better matches of, of his tournament. Um, due to the fact that the way the points were laying out, just one of the beautiful things about uh, New Japan is like, for instance, I was cheering Yujiro to beat Kota Bushi because if he had beat Kota Bushi, it would have given a better chance for my prediction to go to win the A block, Osprey, to stay alive. And normally I would never vote for Yujiro, but like I had to to keep Osprey alive. And that's the beauty of like the sports centric nature of the G1 is like you just don't know what these the importance of a matchup might mean ultimately. So they had a, a enjoyable match there. Kotobushi dispatched Yujiro in 12 minutes. I was sort of on the edge of my seat. More so than the match actually called for <laughs> because the outcome mattered because there's stakes involved. And then um, on the final night, Abushi uh, against Tai Chi, this was the match that de- determined the A block winner. And those guys went out there. They threw something like 140 something kicks. They literally did nothing but throw kicks. They didn't throw a wrist lock. They didn't lock up. There was no shooting star presses. There was no, you know, um, forearm exchanges. There was no headlocks. Like, none of that. Ibushi kicked Taichi. Taichi kicked Ibushi. They did that entirely for the entirety 
of the 17-minute match. And then once Taichi dropped Abushi Kamagoye, that man, I'm in love with this match. It's a fight of the year contender. I went four and a half. Abushi uh, is just phenomenal. Yeah, I love that match as well. I also went four and a half. Those guys, yeah, just literally kicking the crap out of each other. There was one attempt from Taiji to hit that dangerous backdrop driver, oh, yeah. but he did not get it. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned, Kodobushi ends up getting that Kamagoya towards the end once Taichi couldn't stand anymore. So yeah, four and a half. The usual match, this man, Kodobushi, was out here doing flat neck bumps for Yujiro, bumping around and selling like a maniac to uh, make Yujiro look like a, a credible threat. Like there was actually a chance that Yudro could defeat the Golden Star, but obviously it was not to be. Kamagoye straight to the dome. One, two, three. Ibushi defeated Yujiro. So, you know, great little two nights here for Ibushi locking up the A block, uh, winning there. Kind of like you mentioned with the Yujiro match. Uh, for the Taichi match, I was, you know, cheering Taichi. It was my prediction that Taichi was going to spoil Ibushi, and th- which would have helped Okada, you know, get in the way, get through if Okada would have won. But obviously, Okada didn't win. And then um, Bushi ended up beating Taichi here. So what were you hoping? You were hoping Taichi would beat Ibushi and then maybe Will gets through? Yeah. Okay. Because I was like, because the alternative is Jay White. Right. No, I did not want. I did not want Jay to go through. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if, right. if, if Okada wasn't going through, I, I would have wanted Will to go through because I thought, you know, Will could have had a, a great match in the finals. But I was very happy at the end of the Man, day, fuck Will. <laughs> with uh, the Golden Star uh, going through here. All right, let's uh, talk about uh, Jay White. 12 points, 6 wins, 3 losses. Uh, night 15, he was with Gato. He defeated Minoru Suzuki 20 minutes and 30 seconds. And then night 17, uh, he lost in the main event of the A Block final to Tomohiro Ishii in a barn burner of a match, 24 minutes. 35 seconds. Yeah, another two good nights here for Jay White. That match with Suzuki, it was pretty much Suzuki kind of, you know, bullying Jay White, pummeling him, kind of bringing the pain to him. And Jay, you know, kind of weaseling his way around, kind of barely surviving, and obviously had to use, you know, ref, ref distractions and a low blow to the, towards the end there to get the Blade Runner and get the win over Suzuki. And then the Ishii match, kind of similar, not not. As much as of bullying around of uh, JY was more cutting off Ishii anytime Ishii was kind of building up momentum, Jay was finding ways to kind of cut Ishii off and kind of take control. It almost felt like Jay was kind of overconfident in the situation here and feeling like he was kind of kind of easily defeat Ishii and Ishii just kept coming back, kept coming back and kept fighting towards the end there and finally able to fight off Jay and Gato. And get that vertical drop brain buster to defeat Jay, spoil Jay one, Jay White's J one as he's been calling it, and um, knock him out from winning the A block. Hey, uh, you did a fantastic job, you know, kind of recapping the story there. It was just very interesting how the end of the tournament, Jay White got paired up against two of the most domineering and violent uh, competitors in the block in Suzuki and uh, Ishii. Something he lamented on the uh, backstage promos, you know, after defeating Suzuki. Uh, interesting thing there, he's only fought Suzuki one other time that I recall. It was in the G1 two years ago, and Suzuki actually beat Jay White. So um, it almost looked like we were going to get a repeat there, but Jay was able to barely get past Suzuki, but was unable to do the same thing against Ishii. 
Uh, who knows if he had one, what kind of shape he might have come into the finals against uh, Sonata because he just he took a beating both matches. But um, people really, really love this Ishii J White match. Um, I'm almost so desensitized at the end of the tournament that like I'm not sure I'm even qualified to grade these matches properly. But uh, I'm seeing a lot of love for the match. I, I liked it a lot, but people just really invested heavy into the story here. Ishii sort of being the defender that keeps Jay White out, which is kind of um, almost poetic. You know, if you think about Jay White, the way he, uh, you know, was he catapulted himself to stardom by turning on um, Chaos and Ishii sort of being like the most virtuous and, and loyal member of Chaos uh, being the guy that kind of shuts him out undefeated all time against Jay White. Tomohiro <laughs> Ishii. Um, so, th- yeah, it's great. Yeah, man, I was so happy when he beat Jay. Like, don't worry, uh, we, we, we praise Jay White. We like Jay White on this show, but I just did not want Jay going into the finals. And when Ishii came back and hit that man with that vertical drop brain buster, I, I jumped off the couch and was, you know, very happy. Yeah. I, I well, part of it for me, I I did go into the evening spoiled, unfortunately. So that might be part of the reason I wasn't quite as invested as others are. But um, you know, even if you weren't spoiled, I mean, you had a situation where it looked like maybe Osprey could win for most of the night. Then Abushi sort of put a uh, you know, the kibosh on that, and it all came down to this match, and it was like it's either going to be Abushi or it's going to be Jay, and. You know, uh, Jay kind of eating that one, two, three, let you know, like, Abushi's the guy. So, uh, there we go. All right, well, that takes us to the next guy here. The assassin, Will Ospreay, also came in with 12.6 wins and three losses on night 15. He was defeated by Jeff Cobb, 10 minutes and 21 seconds. And Pivotal the- loss. <laughs> yeah, that was a big loss there because um, that – Sent Will into the final night with 10 points. Because if he had beat Cobb, he would have gone in with 12 points. And then beating Okada would have put him to 14, put him in a good spot there. But losing to Cobb, coming in with 10 points, he had to beat Okada on the final night. He also needed Yujiro to beat Cobb in order for there to potentially be a three-way tie if Taichi was able to beat Ibushi and if Ishii had defeated Jay White. But obviously Ibushi won, no three-way tie. Um, so Will wasn't able to get in here. But, yeah, this was a, a really big loss here for Will Ospreay. Since you're, since we haven't moved on to the next match, which I think we, we're going to spend a, a bit of time discussing, um, Cobb, Ospreay, they fought for a double title match last year at Madison Square Garden. Opening, opener match of the show, Cobb was able to defeat him. So uh, you sort of anticipated that Will, who was sort of surging, who really needed this win, was going to beat Cobb. But um, – they love to have spoilers and Cobb was able to play that spoiler here. So he remains undefeated lifetime against Will Ospreay, uh, 10 minutes, 21 seconds. I thought the match was very good. One thing, even if Will had won, it would have put him in a better spot, but because if everything had played out the exact same way, um, he still would have not won the tournament because he lost his match to Ibushi. Right. Um, and Ibushi, Ibushi held the tiebreaker over him. So they didn't necessarily have to do the situation where Cobb beat him. But it was just – it was – I liked the booking because 
a lot of people still sort of thought Osprey might win the block. And when all these different, you know, scenarios were playing out, like, uh, we'll get to it later, but Yujiro needing to beat Cobb and then him needing to, you know, defeat Okada and then him needing these other two situations to happen. Like, it almost kind of created a sense of, like, they might do it. You know, right. there's like a little bit of a red herring there. So it was kind of cool. Yeah, I did not go into this tonight spoiled, but in the morning there was a message in the log loop chat. It was just like, woo, from Rich. And so I was like, either two things happened. Either Will Ospreay won the block or Ishii beat Jay White. Or maybe both happened. I don't know. But I, I had a feeling that... Um, yeah, people people in our group chats, they play uh, fast and loose with the no spoiler rule. They're like, well, technically, that wasn't a spoiler because I didn't say what happened. But then it's like, it's Zach. You know, I'm just, it's not really Zach, but it's Zach. So you know it has something to do with Naito, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, well, well Rich's name, Rich. Rich's na- his nickname was um, something like, I hope uh, Ibushi or Ishii beats JY or something like that. And so yeah. cl- clearly with this woo, I'm like, okay, like. Rich comes out here talking some shit. He doesn't say what it is, but you know, you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> Jay White lost. Like, I, and not that I care, but like, man, in the, people in the Largo Loop need to tighten it up, man. Well, actually, yeah, our new name for that third is this, the Spoiler Club. So. Yeah, I saw that. I'm not as big of a fan as the. I like when we were the, uh, the Chicken Loop, the Chicken Sandwich Loop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when the, the Popeyes <laughs> sandwich just came out. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so Jeff beat Will. Will needed uh, a miracle on the final night, and one of the things that had to happen, he needed to defeat his mentor, Kazushiko Okada, on the final night, night 17. And uh, let's talk about this match because it's one of the more talked-about matches of the entire tournament. Yep, and so, yeah, Osprey does defeat Okada, but he does not do it alone. Angle alert, angle alert. We get a big angle He also here. did not do it honorably. <laughs> <laughs> So in the middle of the match here, towards the end, actually, I should say, um, you know, Okada, he clamps on the money clip on Osprey. Osprey's fighting to get out. And then you hear the crowd with an audible gasp and kind of, you know, sh- like a shocking noise. And it's like, all right, what's going on here? Next thing you know, the SWA champion, B. Priestley, One Nation Radio's uh, Stardom Wrestler of the Year. <laughs> Makes her way down to the ring to chair on her boyfriend to uh, motivate him to get out the money clip. Osprey. No, no, my favorite thing. Former AEW star jumps ship to New Japan Pro Wrestling. (laughs) That's the headline that I saw. I was like, who are they talking about? Oh, B? (laughs) Hey, she, she, she had a hot program with the dentist. Former AEW star jumps ship to New Japan. Hey, she she was ranked. She was in the top five. For, former <laughs> former women's contender. Hey, listen, I don't want to hear anyone talk about women in New Japan ever again. Right. You know. You know what happened? I, I called up Gato. I was like, Gato. Every six months, people ask us <laughs> about women in New Japan. I can't take it anymore. Can you please br- bring somebody else in? And Gato and Gato oblige. And you were like, Gato, let her carry out her uh, her strap. That'll be good cross promotion. Bushi Road will approve. Well, he was like, he was like, who should I bring? I was like, well, there's only one woman you can bring. The, the One Nation Radio. The star, she won. <laughs> she won the poll fair and square. The Stardom Wrestler of the Year for One Nation Radio. She, she's a draw. You, you, you got to bring her in, Gato. 
major draw. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So so B comes out. She's playing distraction. She's drawing. Was it red shoes? Yeah, she she gets red shoes uh, attention. You know, Will kind of fires up, but then Okada locks back in the money clip, and he he's fading. She she distracts red shoes, and then out of nowhere, the great Okan hits the ring, hits the big claw choke slam on Okada. Osprey's acting all surprised to know, you know, what 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 happened, what's going on. Bro, I was sitting there so pissed. I was like, get that stupid look off of your face, Will Ospreay. <laughs> Pretend like you don't know what the fuck is going on. Your girlfriend and your homeboy from Rev Pro show up and you don't know what's going on. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he uh he picks up Okada, hits the Stormbreaker. One, two, three. Finally gets his big win over Okada um, and still kind of pretending like not knowing what's going on. And then, you know, Okada starts getting back up. He kills Okada with the hidden blade, gives him the bird, tells him that he's been holding him back. And we see him align himself with his girlfriend, B. Priestley, and the returning great Okan. Yeah, Will was in the middle of the match doing some Johnny Gargano level melodramatic talking NXT style. I'm just as good as you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the best in the world. Um, yeah, so great, great O'Con, not Karn, but Khan. Uh, they've shortened it up to uh, kind of play on the Mongolian, you know, um, conqueror's name and sort of play into that. I don't know if uh, Oka. Is Mongolian or not? But uh, they're kind of playing into that sort of thing. Um, comes in, you know. This is the smallest I've ever seen him. We haven't seen him since he left on excursion. Really, we've heard mixed things about him. But uh, he had taped up hands, and he gave Okada this uh, claw choke slam. You know, face claw choke slam, reminiscent of Lance Archer, who apparently never left Suzuki Goon. Uh, the news came out this week. He is still an active member of Suzuki Goon, just on the other side of the, of the pond. So <laughs> I never seen that man got kicked out. You know, yeah. Uh, Suzuki- Shelton Benjamin is Shelton Benjamin is still part of Suzuki Goon. And so is Taka. They like, um, freaking Suzuki Goon's just expanded across the world. Right. The, the, the real for life. One of your Suzuki Goon, your Suzuki Goon for life. They're they're basically injecting poison into all the other companies in the world. Mm. You know the, the the thing though is like nine years and they've never really had any sort. They've been going like solid for nine years as a faction, which is sort of unheard of. They've never had anybody turn on anybody, at least in New Japan. Very interesting, especially with yeah. the, with some things happening in this tournament. But the interesting thing here, Will defeats Okada. This is the fifth match between these two. Four times he's lost, fifth time's the charm. He finally gets the Okada monkey off of his back. And we have a lot of questions, uh, you know, regarding this, uh, you know, this match. So I think we should answer those, and that might give us some good talking points. Yeah, so first we have, we have three questions here from Reddit user Rambo and Slam Pig. First he asks, he says, Great Okan looked like Kid Gohan when he came out at the finals, and we all know what Wata looks like. Do these guys come up with their ring gear on their own, or does someone help them? Uh, I don't know that. Do you know if they are influenced as far as the way their gimmicks are, you know, presented, or is that something that they do on their own? I, I don't know. I don't, I really don't hear a lot on 
New Japan guys on kind of what the influence is on their gear and, you know, do they have a certain seamstress? Do they, do they are there certain people that make gear? I'm not sure. Really, it's not really really talked about in New Japan world. Also, in the more Western promotion, it's more talked about and known who's making whose gear and stuff like that. But, yeah, I don't know. Especially at a, a young line coming back, I don't know if that's, like, the first year it's like Gato's like you're you're wearing this and then afterward you can kind of reach out and do your own thing or what the deal is. Yeah, I, I don't completely know the answer to that. And uh we are gonna talk about the um the actual final night. So I wanna hold off on you know uh talking about the gimmick, but um yeah, we don't know I don't know if they come up or with the gimmick on their own or someone helps them. Um, second part of his question, chaos hasn't been super cohesive for a while. Is Osprey's defection its death knell? I mean, it's definitely a chink in the armor. I mean, chaos is one of these factions that doesn't really even seem like a faction. They don't, you never really see them come out together or, you know, help each other out that much. I mean, yeah, that, you know, you have some six man and some multi-mans, but they just don't really seem like that strong of a unit. And so with Osprey defecting, that could kind of be the chink in the armor there that leads to maybe other guys kind of want to defect, whether they join Osprey's empire or they decide to go somewhere else or go to Hontai. Like we kind of talked about last week, there's such a close connection with Chaos and Hontai over the last you know year or so that they might just not want any affiliation, just want to be on a New Japan home team. Well, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do a faction and present it. Uh, I did find the comments that Rocky made on the final night very uh, interesting where he talked about how he's tried to reach out to Will. Will hasn't returned any calls. But that being said, they pretty much, um, you know, they've kind of disavowed him from the group. You know, I mean, obviously he left on his own, but they're like, yo, he's gone. Like, what difference did it really make? I mean, sure, he was the, you know. Like, yeah, he was their junior ace, but, like, him going to heavyweight, like, something like this was inevitable, you know, when it comes to the skill level that he was at and where Okada was. And I don't think any of the members are waning from their devotion to Okada as the top guy in the group. So, like, I have no reason to think that Chaos is splitting up. I mean, they could. I mean, but if they do, I'm not necessarily convinced by this you know, angle that this is going to be the catalyst for that. If anything, like Will was always kind of the like outsider boy that like Okada brought in and allowed to like be part of the group, you know, you know, now if Ishii leaves or some shit like that, that'll be different. You know, if Rapongi 3k turned on them and then I might feel different, but it's like, it's just Will. Yeah. It's just Will. Like, you know, he was going to leave at some point. Like, fuck him. <laughs> Chaos is great, though, because Chaos is like they've had so many defections over the years. You know, they had Yujiro leave. They had Naito leave. Now Will. I mean, they've had quite a few people that were in their ranks that have defected over the years. That is true. And they've, they've managed to kind of you know stay together through all that throughout the defections. So we'll see what happens here. Um, so yes. His last question is: B Priestley appearing at NJPW shows a weird one-off because of her relationship with Will, or a sign of future cross promotion with Stardom under this new regime? I don't know if it's a sign of cross promotion, though. We have seen some 
starting with this past year's Wrestle Kingdom, and I, I hope that it continues, but I honestly just think it's something more along the lines of, like, she's Will's girlfriend. He wants to get her an extra payday. She go and get it. <laughs> right, and from what um Dave was talking about on Wrestling Observer Radio this morning, um, B will be working, you know, full-time in stardom still, um, but when it comes to the big shows for New Japan, she will be accompanying Will. So she won't probably she won't be on like the road two shows if it conflicts with the stardom schedule, but she will miss stardom shows to appear at a G1 finals, at a power struggle, at a Wrestle Kingdom. And so that's kind of the plan going forward. Real quick before we continue, let me ask you. I know I know like stardom is not your full wheelhouse, but like I tried to do some research on this SWA title. It's called like a world title, but obviously like the red belt is their true top belt. So what is the deal with this SWA title? Uh, I'm not <laughs> the guy to ask about it. I'm, I'm, my start on watching this year has been a lot less than it has been last year. And so, yeah, we, we need to bring in Zach or James to kind of explain what, what the SWA belt is. <sighs> All right. I'll text Dr. Joshi, see what he <laughs> says. Uh, next question from V Milani one two three two. He said, "I've only watched New Japan consistently for two or three years, and watched it on and off a couple years before that. There hasn't been really anything in the form of faction change in that time, besides just leaving the company. From what I've gathered, it seems that factions and sides have changed more often in the past." To piggyback off that question about chaos going away, are we in store for a big faction overhaul? Well, obviously, I mean, we've kind of talked about here on the show, like, these factions, Chaos, Bullet Club, LIJ, Suzuki-Gun, have all kind of been together for quite some time. Like you mentioned, Suzuki-Gun's been together nine years. We've had these factions that have been together for so long. They really haven't been that big of a shakeup. Obviously, we kind of had the Bullet Club elite stuff that kind of happened. Um, but there hasn't really been, a, you know, any new units, any kind of big, really big shakeups, And so... With this Osprey turn and him starting his own unit, and it seems like he's going to be calling it the Empire. It's something. It's, it's kind of exciting here. We're getting a new unit, some kind of shake up here. I'm excited that we're getting a new unit and kind of see are we going to get more defections or is Will just going to bring in some more Rev Pro people and kind of seeing what that unit looks like. And we could be seeing, especially with the whole Jay White and Evil storyline, maybe there could be some Bullet Club shake up there, and maybe even a new unit that's that kind of you know comes out of that whole Civil War right there. Yeah, the great thing with, uh, you know, pro wrestling is, like, there's a lot of room for them to shake things up and make big changes like that. Maybe, for the time being, this is a two-man power trip, and maybe they're already in cahoots with other groups and other individuals to do something beyond just the two-man. We really don't know, Um, but you're absolutely correct. I mean... There, there's definitely been a lack of shakeups. I mean, the biggest shakeup we've seen over the past few years was when Jay White left uh, Chaos and went to the Bullet Club, and the whole original supposed "quote unquote" Bullet Club split, which really turned into nothing. But aside from that, um, and you know that. Oh, and speaking of that, that kind of was the catalyst for Chaos and Hot Tide to kind of cross the bridge and work together. But aside from that, we haven't really seen a big shape shake up the way it was with like rise and great bash heel and chaos and everything of that nature. Um, so I think we are due for some changes, but um, this is, this is definitely exciting 
Um, I have some criticisms from what they've done early, but we've seen where they've messed things up early with lots of, you know, debuts and, and things of that nature and kind of turned it around. So I'm still optimistic and it does seem like this is going to be a group called the empire. Like Jeremy mentioned, that's what, uh, Osprey and Oka have kind of mentioned on social media and in their post-match promo. So we'll see. Um, one of the things, Oh, this is what I was alluding to. Rocky had said on commentary that he believes that while will was at home, will watch evil depart from lij and all it took was him basically leaving and doing his own thing and turning on his mentor to get ahead and that's where he thought will kind of got the idea from and decided on his own to do it and maybe we'll start to see some more defections like that so uh other superstars who are on the rise we can make room for them and create opportunities right so uh, next question here from producer viking pain says so osprey is being a dick evil is already a dick and Dick Togo is actually a dick, which means all three are in cahoots. When do you expect Evil and Dick to join up with their fellow Dick in, in his new faction? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, next question from EMJ does PR. He says, let's fill out Osprey Stable. Who's a good fit? It's only a matter of time before Elf and Tazbo ditches Bullet Club, right? Um, you know, one thing I meant, I noticed is... They're calling themselves the Empire. They're going to take over. And even though Oka or Okan is sort of working a Jiangxi gimmick, he's also sort of alluding to being this dominator or this conqueror like the great, you know, like uh, Khan. So, you know, Khan was Mongolian. The Mongolian Empire is one of the largest empires in the history of the world. And then. You know, obviously, with Will Ospreay being British and him being the Rep Pro Undisputed Heavyweight Title holder, you know, there's allusions to the idea of like a British Empire, which is the largest empire ever in history. Those are the two largest. So maybe they're going to keep doing like a, na- a nationalistic thing and bring in different people from major world empires. I know that sounds like kind of hokey, but there is that sort of thing already started. Uh, or maybe they will continue to bring other people in from just RevPro. Maybe that's the idea. Um, I, I don't know. They've got a lot of leeway with what they can do, though. Right. I know there's a guy in RevPro called uh, Lord Gideon Gray, and I believe somebody was saying that his gear on the last RevPro show, uh, one of the Epic Encounters, was, was matching the new gear that Osprey was wearing on the G1 final night. So maybe there's some connection there with Lord Gideon Gray. Maybe he, he's, he's going to come on over. Who, that could be just a coincidence. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, who knows? Shota Umino, um, who's done his excursion in Rev Pro, if he's ready, maybe you bring him over. Or maybe it's kind of like you were saying, maybe it's a, a two-man power trip for a while until they kind of find that next kind of you know empire background they want to bring in. Well, the great thing, too, is both these guys have a background in Rev Pro. So once some of the travel restrictions are sort of lifted, they can work this gimmick in this group in both New Japan and Rev Pro. Very similar to the model that Bullet Club worked, you know, on the independent scene and in uh, Ring of Honor as well as New Japan. So um, there's always that aspect as well. Right. And then he also asked, he says, Oka is back. Can you guys talk a little bit about some memorable excursion returns for Young Lions? What makes a good return in your opinion? And can you name a couple good slash bad ones for us? 
Yeah, I, I don't want to go too far deep into the history this week. Like I mentioned, we got a lot to talk about, but I'm a, my whole thing is a good return is when a guy comes in, he's obviously getting the push, they put him in a prompt position, he's allowed to showcase what he's able to do, and they push him right away. And, you know, some prime examples of that, even just recently, would be Hiromu, Rapongi 3K. Very good examples of how to do a excursion return. Jay White. Um, some bad ones. Watto. <laughs> you know? I know Watto's got his fans and everything, but I think I'm at the point now where I'm ready to say, regardless of what he ends up being in the future, it was a bad um, return. And I'm almost ready to say Oka's return isn't much better. They got to prove that he's... Now, they're going to give him an opportunity here shortly. We'll talk about it, but... uh He's 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 working this King Dynasty Jiangxi gimmick that maybe translates over there, but doesn't translate across the world. Um, and I, I've always been someone who is definitely in favor of them working towards their domestic audience, but not at the expense of being able to expand nationally. Like my whole thing is like, why not just put a fucking leather jacket on the guy like he's the death rider like he's Hiromu and let him beat someone's ass like this guy had a serious legit background he was one of the best amateur wrestlers in all of Japan as a as a high school uh amateur he he was the all Japan champion that that's basically like being an NCAA national champion um he's got a background in judo pancreation BJJ kickboxing like yeah, literally, like when we thought he was going to be like a Nagata or an Ishii when we used to watch him, he's one of my. He was literally my favorite uh, young lion to watch, and they got him working like a Japanese heel gimmick, like he's in 1980s WWF, like he's Mister, you know, Fuji or Killer Khan or something. It's very bizarre. So I'm, I'm already very leery of the way that they're treating him. Yeah, it's definitely very questionable, and we'll talk more about kind of what we saw from him in that tag match on the finals. And yeah, absolutely agree with pretty much everything you've said to the answer to this question. Um, you know, you know the great, you know the vignettes, the kind of impactful debuts, getting into a hot program off the jump. Um, that's the stuff you're looking for. You know, not it's kind of like awkward. You know, you show up, you get beat up by the lowest man, Suzuki Goon, kind of thing. Now let's be clear: they're giving him an opportunity. We saw Okada come back. He didn't have the hottest return ever in the history of wrestling, and he was able to turn around. So, I mean, I'm not like giving up on Oka, on Oka at this, or yeah, on Okan at this point, but uh, questionable. Yeah. Um, then, last two questions here on the subject are from Dom Homie 101. Thoughts on the pairing of Ospay and the Great Okan? Is this the Great Okan supposed to be the modern day version of Killer Khan? <laughs> I don't know about the Killer Khan thing. Um, that's a pretty unique worker, but there's definitely some similarities there. Um, I don't think it's a bad pairing. I don't know how long-term it's going to be. Um, but they're giving a big opportunity to both these guys. We talked earlier about how there's been a lack of opportunity for new stables. The last new, really, truly new stable was LIJ, and it's been one of the most successful things that the company has ever done. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Will, a lot of pressure on, on Ocon to deliver, and um, I'm excited to see what happens. 
Yeah, I'm excited too. I mean, we've only seen you know two kind of appearances of this of this pairing and kind of how they work together. Um, like I said, I'm kind of excited for this new unit. I think it could be cool. Um, also, we talked about Oka's kind of his in ring presentation. Uh, we'll talk about that more in tag match, but. Overall, I think this could be cool, but like you mentioned, a lot of pressure on these guys to kind of make it work out. Um, then his second question, so will the for, the real Forbidden Door be open between NJPW and Stardom with B. Priestley? Oh, that door's already open, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, last you know, thing just to talk about the, the match here. We had a lot of questions, but thought the match was very good. Not quite up to the level of many of their other matches, but it didn't necessarily need to be uh, big talking points, obviously, coming out of the match. And um, I do think that there's a big story yet to be told between Will and Okada going forward, maybe even for, say, Tokyo Dome. Definitely, especially with what they kind of set up there on that last night. And speaking of Okada, he's the next guy we'll be talking about here. Also with 12 points, six wins and three losses. On night 15, he uh, defeated Tomohiro Ishii, 26 minutes, 13 seconds. And then we just talked about on night 17, he lost to Will Ospreay, 17 minutes and 4 seconds. So thoughts on the Ishii match real quick. Well, uh, the Ishii and the uh, Ospreay matches are very similar to me in the sense of that I've seen him face these two common opponents many times in the past. Some of his best opponents and best matches and... During this tournament, in both cases, they really underwhelmed me, although seemed to impress a lot of other people. Um, especially the match with Ishii, I don't know. Um, I went like four and a quarter, maybe four stars, something like that. Um, I know that the lack of crowd reaction definitely affected the match, but this felt overly long for the two of them and not quite lively. Um, I've always heard people compare Okada to Orton and there's been similarities in the sense of like mechanics, but not in the sense of urgency or timing. And this tournament, Okada did feel like Orton in a G1 and this match really, you know, stuck out to me because we seen him and Ishii have literally like 4.75 five-star classics the last two times they wrestled. And this one, to me, I don't know. I feel like anyone who's rating this super high is just want like they like maybe they just like these guys or, or like that's the trendy thing to do. But I, I I was very underwhelmed by the match in terms of who was in it. Yeah, right there with you. I was underwhelmed also. I went four stars flat on this main event, and especially after watching the recommended match of the week um, yes. from last week, like you, you expect something on that level. You get hype. You watch that. You get hyped up. You're like. And it was a main event. Right. Like, if this was maybe, say, the opener, middle of the car, I could be like, okay. And it went like 10 to 15 minutes. I could be like, I can understand why it didn't reach the heights that it did in the past. But this was the main event. Um, they went almost a full 30 minutes, and it just didn't reach that, that higher level, at least for me. And I think you're in kind of the same agreement there. Um, and so I, I don't know what it was. Like you kind of mentioned, it was definitely the, the pacing. I just felt like it was kind of a slower style match. And I don't know. I just feel like Ishii didn't get a chance to really shine here. Very cerebral match. What else can I say? Yeah. And uh, we already talked about the Osprey match. Um, so any other thongs on Okada before we move on? 
No, um, we're going to give our grades later, so. All right, so let's move on to the next guy here, Tomohiro Ishii, the guy that he faced on night 15. So Ishii finished with eight points, four wins, five losses. Like we mentioned on night 15, he was defeated by the Rainmaker, 26 minutes and 13 seconds. Then, like we mentioned earlier as well, on night 17, he had the big upset win over the Switchblade Jay White, 24 minutes, 35 seconds. Big main event moment there for Ishii to defeat the Switchblade there. Like we mentioned, I just felt like uh, coming on to that main event, I think a lot of people were thinking that, you know, Jay was just going to, you know, beat Ishii and it, based on the hierarchy that would kind of make sense here. But Ishii able to fight through and, and defeat the Switchblade, like we mentioned, you know, spoiling Jay White and knocking him out of the A block contention there. And, you know, we'll talk about, you know, grades and MVPs later on, but Ishii, one of the standouts in the A block, killing it every night. And, yeah, just some great performances over these two nights. Especially, I mean, I like I like the, the 917, the Jay White main event, much better than I like the, the Okada match. Well, um, to kind of tack on to what you said there, the, the big thing on the final night is, you know, you had a surging Jay White, and then you sort of had an Ishii who while having great matches hadn't performed to his optimum in this, you know, tournament, uh, lots of losses, especially early on to a lot of the big name, uh, competitors and him being in the, the main event on the final night seemed super unlikely given the fact that he was already knocked out. You know, this sort of seemed like it should have been a match that was sort of like a second or third from the top. And, been like a red herring spoiler sort of situation said instead it was like the deciding match of the entire tournament and they did that in a few, they did that twice on that night where they this was a match that was very important with someone who was sort of an underdog and they kind of did the same thing with Yujiro and Cobb earlier in the, the the night as well and for someone that performed as well in this tournament as Ishii you kind of still wanted to, him to have like a defining moment, something that really mattered. And while he had great matches, there was nothing to point to like that in this tournament until this night. And him defeating Jay White was like, that's his moment. He was the guy who took that away from Jay, kept him out of the finals and won that huge match on the final night of a block, which was great. Yeah. And just overcoming the knee injury, you know, the, the, the knee was taped up the last few nights there and Jay targeted the knee Put on that that Tanahashi tap out the TTO, um, was really the ITO. Yeah, the the Ishii tap out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, man, he's just great. So yeah, so that that's Ishii. So that brings us to the next guy, Tai Chi, also finishing this tournament with eight points, four wins, and five losses on night fifteen. He defeated Shingo Tatagi at sixteen minutes twenty one seconds, and then night seventeen, like we mentioned, the final night. Um, he lost to the Golden Star, 17 minutes and 12 seconds. Um, Taichi had an incredible tournament. Uh, the match with Shingo really, really, really delivered. The match with Kota Ibushi really, really, really delivered. Uh, he was in a block with a lot of killers. So, I mean, when I talk about who are like my top five guys in the tournament, it might not be Taichi, but there was a time where like, he was kind of seen as like a Ujiro. Like he's the guy who's going to hold everybody back. He doesn't even deserve to be here. This is a joke. 
And instead, if I were to do a comp tape of all the matches, his top, like, say, five or six matches in the tournament, that'd be a very enjoyable couple hours of, of wrestling, you know, viewing. And these matches did not disappoint. Um, now, he did, you know, start the tournament super hot with some big wins and was in the lead and then start dropping a lot towards the end. So that is unfortunate. But, um, yeah, man, him beating Shingo on night 15 after eating, like, what, three losses back-to-back, that was huge. That was huge. Um, I didn't expect it by any means at all. I thought uh, Shingo was going to beat him, so that was a big deal. And it made all the sense because he was going into the final night against Ibushi in what ended up being one of the deciding matches of the tournament. And the whole thing there was, what's Tai Chi best at? Kicking. Right. Ibushi was trying to beat him at his own game, and he did. And they told an awesome story over 17 minutes. And Tai Chi's like one of my favorite guys in the, the A block. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, Tai Chi's one of my favorite guys too. But real quick, back on Ibushi for a second. With Ibushi, something we didn't really touch on. He was kind of in his matches pretty much wrestling the style of whoever he was going against. So like you mentioned here, in this Tai Chi match, he was, you know, blending to Tai Chi's style and going with the kicks here. Because uh, also that's kind of Tai Chi's strength being, you know, being trained by Kawada. And so... Yeah, but Tai Chi, like you mentioned, one of the top guys in A Block. Ton of great performances. There's a ton of great, you know, above four star matches you can point to this tournament. And like I mentioned, you know, previous weeks, his moveset is just great. The Kawada kicks, the leg kicks, the the axe boomba, the dangerous backdrop driver, the black Mephisto. Like there's just so much great stuff that Tai Chi does um, in his matches, and he's had some great matches he had some great opponents too to give him those great matches but yeah i I really enjoy tai chi in this tournament agreed so then that takes us to mr athletic jeff cobb also with eight points four wins and five losses like we talked about on night 15 he defeated will osprey in that big upset moment there 10 minutes 21 seconds and on night 17 he got upset by the tokyo pimp yujiro takahashi yeah, we, we talked about the Osprey win. Big deal for him, just the fact that, like, Cobb is so high, or, you know, uh, Osprey's, you know, so protected and given such a, a big push this past year. And um, the the most recent loss he took was against Cobb, so he's kind of got a 2 0 record against him. Um, big deal there. And then he kind of rebounded by taking a loss to Ujira, who was someone that was literally. Oh, and eight in the tournament going into this evening. So um, maybe a story of like Cobb taking him a little bit lightly, possibly not sure. Um, Cobb a little bit inconsistent for me, but uh, still, you know, a welcome addition to the a block. Uh, I don't have much to say as far as ratings for these matches, but uh, yeah. Yeah, these matches were fine. Uh, the the Cobb Osprey match it was only it was only ten minutes. I think I went about like three and a half on that one. Um, and this Yujiro Cobb one, I think I went three stars flat. You know, Yujiro ends up using the his pimp cane to uh, hit Cobb, hits the pimp juice DDT to get his uh, only win of the tournament. Uh, we did have a question here from Dom Homie One Hundred One. Is it the Jeff Cobb redeem himself from his performance in last year's G One? He improved. I wouldn't say redeemed. I would say he improved, which is good, but not everything you'd hope for. Right. It's not like he came out here and, like, 
blaze a trail and was having like match of the night and throwing out bangers every night. He had some nights where he was, you know, really good and really great, and then there were some other nights where he was just kind of, just kind of there. Um, and so I, I would like to see him back in the G one again next year. I think it's kind of like what we talked about last week with him. The longer he was in Japan, the longer he was on these tour, he's kind of acclimating to the style and kind of getting better. Well, let's talk about the next uh, man in the tournament, Shingo Takagi. Eight points, four wins, five losses. Night 15, Taichi defeated Shingo. And then on night 17, final night, Shingo defeated Minoru Suzuki. 12 minutes and 29 seconds. Yep, so we talked about Taichi and Shingo with the Shingo and Suzuki matchup here. Uh, was not as on the same level as their summer struggle match. Was it still a, a really great matchup? I went four stars flat on this. Uh, it was a 12-minute match. Uh, clearly, the story here, like we, we've talked about for weeks, was um, Shingo coming in, former Never Champion. Zuki's the current Never Champion. If he beats Zuki, he was going to potentially get a Never title shot. So this was a big match for him, even though it did not have any implications on whether or not he would win the G1. And so that was the story here. Beat Zuki so he can get a future title shot, and that's what he ended up doing here. Yeah, um... You know, another part of that story is just the fact that even when he, you know, is able to get the upper hand or get a win over Suzuki, Suzuki still treats him with such contempt and acts like he's better than him. And Shingo's not used to that. Shingo's used to being the bully, the guy that, that, you know, strikes fear and instills that in people. And he's not able to do that with Suzuki. And I mean, you're absolutely right. This match was not as good as the one they had in Jingo, but at 12 minutes, four stars or around that area. That's a really great match, and uh, it ended very abruptly. Shingo was able to get the win, but uh, the war between these two guys is not over by a long shot. Right. We'll, we'll see as we talk um, later on in the show about some announcements. We'll, we'll find out what's the future for these two men. After that, uh, we had Minoru Suzuki, six points, three wins, six losses. He was defeated night 15 by Jay White and then night 17 by Shingo. Um, we did have a question from Viking Pain. He said, do you guys think Suzuki being given such a low point total was a way for New Japan to take him out of the G1 next year? I think him not being involved in G129 actually helped preserve his body greatly for his fantastic 2020 run. Uh, run. I can see them doing the, uh, the same thing again next year. He'll be 53, and no matter how great Suzuki has been, his bump card has to be running low now. Yeah, I, I don't know if giving him a low point total is was a way for them to keep him out of the G1 next year. Uh, Agreed. Uh, honestly, I think it just really depends on kind of his contract status and who they bring in. I mean, last year they brought in John Moxley. They brought in Kenta. Osprey and Shingo were in the tournament. There's a lot of top guys in the tournament. And plus like, they kind of told that story of him not being in the tournament to set up the Royal Quest uh, title match of him and Okada. So I don't think keeping him out is kind of an age thing or trying to, preserve his body, because, I mean, for the most part, throughout the years, he's, he's doing kind of stuff on the road, twos. I mean, he's having some some fuse, but nothing super crazy. So, I mean, I could see him in the G1 again next year, as long as they're not bringing in, you know, more foreign talent. There's a bunch of guys that are ready to be in the G1. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm looking at this stuff now, and I'm like... Yeah, in 2018, he had 10 points. 2017, he had nine points. Um, I don't know. Like, the year before that, oh, yeah, he was in Noah. 
Here's the thing. He usually ends with decent point totals, but he usually gets eliminated pretty early on, and then they give him some wins to get his uh, totals up to a respectable amount. And this year's a little different in the fact that he's the never champion. And it's sort of like what I said the other week. Suzuki doesn't need the wins. Like, is anyone going to take a look at Suzuki's G1 year and take a look at those six wins and be like, oh, man, this guy is washed? No, it's Minoru Suzuki. He could lose a million times at this point, and it really doesn't matter. Um, Now, I know it is sports-centric, and so in theory, maybe he wouldn't quote-unquote qualify. But look at who he's working with next. He's working with Shingo. He's probably going to do something big at the Dome. By the time the next G1 comes around, after a New Japan Cup and you know some mid-year runs, I'm sure if he wants to be in the G1 and they want him to be in it, he'll do it again. Like I don't, I don't think that. Uh... The other thing too, Suzuki generally takes it really easy during the G1 in in general. This is probably one of the more hard work G1s he's done in a while. So it's not like yes, these are taxing, but I don't think that it's like these are taking years off of his career or anything like that so i'd have to disagree i think uh you know if he wants to work another g1 next year he'll be fine to do so and if he wanted to do it where he works it and he starts declining he probably could do that too because he's minoru suzuki (laughs) (laughs) and all he has to do is sneer and make faces and slap people and elbow them and gotcha them and he's fine Right, and honestly, we, we don't know what the travel is going to look like come next year and who they're going to be able to bring in and all that stuff. So Suzuki's definitely a guy you want to keep as an option to have in G1. Yeah. Then our final guy here in the bottom of the A block, just two points, only one win with eight losses, and that is the Tokyo Pimps, Yujiro Takahashi. On night 15, he was defeated by the Golden Star, Kota Ibushi, 12 minutes and 28 seconds. And then on the final night, he defeated Jeff Cobb, 10 minutes and 30 seconds. We kind of touched on both of these matches already. Any final thoughts on Yujiro Takahashi? As somebody that is training in wrestling, I can attest that wrestling is extremely difficult. It's very, very hard. And I watch someone like Yujiro, who everyone tells me sucks. And it's fun. You know, it's fine. We can all grade and judge and assess and rate stuff. But at the end of the day, the majority of people who are consuming wrestling, especially, you know, Japanese wrestling over here in the States, we're not really doing it, you know. And um, there's no denying that Yujiro might not have as entertaining matches as other people in the block. But I can tell you, watching him with like this new set of eyes that I have, Yujiro is good. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be good to be in New Japan Pro Wrestling as long as he's been in New Japan. Now, he might not be at the elite level of working as other people. There's also a chance that maybe they don't want him to be. Maybe he's fulfilling a role that they have for him. But like, there's a lot of things he does that are really complex, really complicated, and really painful. And I'm like, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm going to, like, stand for him. But uh, Ujiro's good. He had a, uh, he worked his ass off in this tournament, you know. Um, and he went zero wins, 
one loss. He got that final loss against Cobb, and I think that was the story they were telling. Yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, I know a lot of people were kind of dreading Ujiro being in this tournament. Uh, overall, I mean, there was nothing that was, like, horrible. I mean, he had a lot of, you know, kind of three-star matches, and then he when he got in there with guys like Abushi and Shingo um, and guys like that, he was having, you know, three and a half, you know, three and a quarter, three and a half star matches and look, looking really good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I want him to be in the G1 again next year, but, I mean, I thought he was fine. No, I don't. I, I wouldn't want him to be in it again next year unless something changed drastically. Yeah. Well, that wraps up the A block. Now we can uh, move on over to the B block here where we'll start with the B block champion, the Cole Skull Sonata, who ended the block with 12 points, six wins, and three losses. On night 16, he defeated the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi, 28 minutes and 25 seconds. And then on night 18, he defeated his former IWGP Tag Team Champion partner for my LIJ stablemate, Evil, with 27 minutes and one second to win the block. Um, I kind of dig Glamrock Sonata in the sense of I find it funny from an ironic standpoint, (laughs) (laughs) Um, the look itself. Um, But as far as this tournament, we'll we'll give our grades. But uh, Sonata Evil is an interesting one because how long those two guys, you know, tag together, team together, and the trajectory that those two guys seem to be on simultaneously within the company. And I've seen people talk about, you know, future – Wrestle Kingdom main event, future G1 final main event. I don't see it. This was another taste of Sonata Evil. It was the same as it always is. I, I don't know. In three stars, 27 minutes. I was not fucking feeling it. Um, the match with Tanahashi was great. Um, probably Sonata's best match in the block, but that's not any surprise because Tanahashi gave five people in the block their best match <laughs> of the tournament. 28 minutes, 25 seconds, Sonata defeated Tanahashi. It was, by and large, I mean, when I say it was his best match, I mean, by a wide margin. I didn't think anything in the block touched it. Um, and it was still, like, four stars. So, I got to tell you, I'm not, I was not impressed with Sonata in the block whatsoever. And these two nights, even though that match was good, I still, 28 minutes, I found it hard to get through. I found both of these main events hard to get through, I'm just being honest. Yeah, uh, I absolutely agree with you on Sonata's, your thoughts on Sonata. I thought this tournament, he was just kind of there, just kind of, you know, just kind of mid, honestly. Um, And like you mentioned, the Night 16 match with Tanahashi, probably his best match in the tournament. But even that match, I've seen some people being like, you know, match of the tournament, really great match, and like giving it super higher ratings. And again, I think it's kind of that, you know, it it was a Tanahashi match, so we got to kind of rate it high, but... It was match of the night. Yeah, it was match of the night. I thought it was a great man. I think I went four stars flat on it, but uh, you know, it it could have been better. But especially at twenty eight minutes and twenty five seconds, but uh, I, I thought it was a great main event. And but I thought that that was because of Tanahashi and not because of Sonata necessarily. I mean, obviously it takes two to tango, but I felt like Tanahashi was kind of the the star power there in that matchup. Yeah. Uh, next man, Evil, 12 points, 6 wins, 3 losses. 
He was defeated on the final night by Sonata. They tied, and he lost the tiebreaker, giving Sonata the edge. Uh, he was also defeated on night 16, or he defeated Hiroki Goto, eliminating him from the block uh, standings, 15 minutes and 33 seconds. Um, the amount of audio that I've recorded criticizing Evil could probably fill hours at this point. I'm not feeling it. I wasn't feeling it on either of these two nights. Most of the tournament, I wasn't feeling it with Evil. How about the fact that Evil's best match of the tournament was with Yoshi Hashi? Mm. How about the fact that no one else in the tournament's best match of the tournament was with Yoshi Hashi? I think that speaks volumes. Evil is mid as fuck. He does fucking suck. He sucked in the G1. He had like two kind of good matches. Fuck Evil. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll diddle that. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm over the the Dick Togo and the the Garot wire and the blatant the, <laughs> the, bl- the blatant interference and just making the referees look like absolute goobers. Um, yeah, these two matches, I I, I don't really have much to say about them. I was I was very happy that Sonata beat Evil because I did not, and I repeat. Did not want Evil to get into that that finals. I know that there are people kind of throwing around a Jay White Evil final, and also the Abushi one. But I did I did not want uh, Evil getting in there, so I was very happy <laughs> that Sonata yeah. beat him. When it comes time to grades, Sonata as well as Ishii, because they kept us from getting an All Bullet Club final. Whatever their true score is, I'm gonna bump it up a little bit and give it that extra plus. You give that extra credit. That extra credit because they <laughs> kept us from getting that evil and uh, Jay White shit. So, yeah, yeah, I have I have nothing else on evil until we get to the grades. So, let's move on Tetsu- to yeah. Tetsuya Naito, the double gold champion, twelve point six wins, three losses. Night sixteen, he defeated the uh, <laughs> KOPW champion Toriano, and uh, night eighteen, he was upset by Kenta in 21 minutes and six seconds, which was the deciding factor that kept Naito out of the G1 final. Yeah, the, the Yano match on night 16, that was um, a pretty good uh, Yano match there. Probably got one of Yano's uh, longer matches. Um, they had some uh, fun stuff there with those two guys. Obviously, Naito being able to get the best of Yano there. And I know a lot of people thought that, that would have been an upset alert, but Naito was able to defeat Yano there. And then, the, the Kenta match, that was one, kind of what they were setting up, especially with Evil and Sonata kind of being in the main event. Um, that that kind of scrimps, uh, spoiler alert for me, for Kenta. I think even from the very beginning, we, we, we kind of speculated that Kenta would be a guy that would spoil Naito there on that last night, and that's exactly what happened here. He was able to um, defeat Naito and knock Naito out from winning the A block, giving a chance for his Bullet Club uh, member, Evil, to win the block. Which he failed to do. Kenta beats Naito. What's more prestigious, the red briefcase or the two, the white and the blue, the white and the black belt? I don't know. Hard to say. Well, feels like feels like maybe the red the red briefcase is the most prestigious prize in all of New Japan right now. Well, I, I think he needs he needs to you know cash in that red briefcase, get the red belt, and then win the black and white belt, so we could have a triple gold dash. We don't need that red belt. Throw that red belt in the trash. It's all about the red briefcase now. <laughs> but, that uh, that in all busted, broken Naito, red <laughs> briefcase. 
Naito's had a really great tournament. He had a, a Toriano match. It was another Yano match. I don't have much to say about it. Kenta beat Naito. It was a much better match than the one that they had back in February. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this Naito Kento match. Kenta match a lot, and I was not looking forward to it based off what they did in Osaka in February. But yeah, it was, it was a pretty good matchup. I agree. Let's talk about Kenta. Ten points, five wins, four losses. Uh, he ends the tournament towards the top, but he was one of the first eliminated from contention mathematically. On uh, night 16, he defeated Yoshihashi, and then on night 18, defeated ten, uh, Tetsuya Naito. Um, I Really enjoyed the Kenta Yoshihashi match on night 16. Surprisingly, because the match they had in, I believe, New York last year was such a failure. And uh, this one was much better. So Kenta kind of redeeming himself two rematches that both, in my opinion, trended higher than the original matches. Yeah. And, you know, Kenta's a guy, uh, I'll say I don't think his G1 was as good as it was last year. No, uh, but I still think he, he had a fine tournament and it was kind of refreshing with him, you know, not really cheating for the most part and um, wrestling clean for majority of his matches. And so kind of a match like Yoshihashi where it's more of a, kind of a heavy hitting match from the other matches we've seen in the tournament. Uh, it, was, it was kind of uh, refreshing, especially on this night here when, with the deal of evil shenanigans. Um, and so, yeah, I enjoyed the Yoshihashi match as well. Like I said, like I mentioned with the Naito match, I really enjoyed that because I was really dreading that one. And so. Um, like you mentioned, yeah, it's had two rematches that end up being better than they were from the previous matches. After that, Zack Sabre Jr. also tied with 10 points, five wins, four losses. He defeated Juice Robinson on night 16, 14 minutes and 30 seconds. And then he was defeated by the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi, on night 18, 12 minutes and one second. Yeah, so the, the Sabre-Juice matchup was a pretty good matchup here. Uh, Juice was trying to wrestle Sabre style which eventually ended up being the backfire for him, and uh, Sabre was over to overcome Juice, get the win there to go up to 10 points. And then on that final night, uh, facing off against old rival Tanahashi, we've seen the series that these guys have had um, last year, obviously with the Rev Bro British title, and then obviously they've been feuding this year with the tag titles of Dangerous Techers and Golden Aces. And this was another match where we kind of speculated that um, you know Tanahashi would you know get a big win over Saber here to kind of keep the Golden Aces Dangerous Ticker story alive, which is interesting. Obviously now with Abushi winning the whole G one, he defeated Taichi the last night of the A block, and then Tanahashi defeating Saber here. So clear, I mean, it kind of seems like it, it would continue the story, but with Abushi being a G one champion, I don't think we're gonna get much more of Golden Aces and Dangerous Tickers. Well, there's other options, and we'll talk about that later on. Um, you know, kind of discuss what all what could be happening going forward. But uh, Zack Saber, really good tournament with the Juice match. It's interesting because he kind of sunned Juice in one of the nastiest submission holds. Just uh, what was it two two G ones ago? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So um, Juice never having defeated Zack before was looking to get 10 points. He was unable to do that, and Zach rolled him up. Uh, big demoralizing defeat for Juice. Um, Zach went into the final night with 10 points, which would have maybe hypothetically put him within striking distance to maybe win, but because of prior losses to Naito as well as Sonata, kind of kept him locked out 
Um, but on that final night with Tanahashi, Tanahashi and him, those two guys, I know that other people are sick of the matches and said that they've wrestled too many times. And there is truth to that, but they've never had a bad match or even a non great match. And this was another great match at just 12 minutes. Um, I thought it was a fitting addition to the match that they've had in the past. And Zach tried many times to, you know, outpin the ace and Tanahashi was able to reverse one of those pins and pick up the big win there. And he held that, that pin for an extra five to six, you know, five to six second count really adding insult to injury. Zach was freaking out. Yeah. He was like trying uh, to shoot on that man after the bell. <laughs> Tanahashi cut a promo after the match talking about how every kilo counts and, they're a little ambiguous about the weight classes in New Japan right now, but that Zach is small, and if he'd been bigger, he would have been able to kick out. But because he's not, Tanahashi muscled that man, deboed him, took the W from him. Mm, um, lift some weights, geek. Yeah, lift some weights, geek. But uh, I thought the match uh, was awesome. I thought it was one of Zach's best matches at the tournament, and uh, I thought it was a great way to finish. Uh, you know, with Zach and Tana. And it was match of the night on B-Block easily. Yeah, it was. And like you mentioned, yeah, these guys always have great matches together. I think I was four stars, about four stars on this matchup as well. And yeah, 12 happy, minutes, man. Yeah, twelve, just 12 minutes. Uh, but yeah, I was happy to see the A's kind of get the win there. And uh, yeah, keep keep Sabre locked down there for that for that six seconds. You know, three ain't enough. He needs six. <laughs> <laughs> Tanahashi, four wins, five losses, eight points. He lost to Sonata and then uh, defeated Zack Sabre Jr., we had a question from Just a Little Bear zero one. He said, "Well, I don't think this year's Tanahashi's last G one. He'll definitely get a Yuji Nagata esque send off when that happens. How many G ones do you think he has left? And it will feel weird as hell without him when once that does happen, right?" Yeah, I mean, it's definitely gonna feel weird whenever that point is with Tanahashi not being in the G one, not being you know the, the full time kind of active competitor. But I still think he has quite a few G1s left in the tank. I mean, is this something five. where you think five is, is the number there? He got five more to go. <laughs> uh, He's got five on it. Got five on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, bro. But, yeah, I mean, Tanahashi is one of these guys, like we kind of talked about, where we, we think that, you know, because of his age and because of all the either the, the shoot injuries or not shoot injuries that he's, you know – kind of broken down old man but then he goes out here and still has these amazing matchups and classics and changes his style up and just is able to kind of persevere and have this kind of longevity that he's had you know 21 i believe years wrestling and he's still putting out great work right now so i I still like you mentioned at least five more years 21 years wrestling yeah i believe that's what he said in his promo 2021, yeah. something like uh, that. I'll say at least five more G1s. I wouldn't be surprised if he does another nine. Fuck it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so uh, after, I mean, I don't know. I don't have any final thoughts about Tanahashi. Should we talk about both these matches? Yeah, I mean, he, he's an ace, had a great tournament. Um, I still love the Naito match from night one. Also, we'll get into um, grades and the top 10 matches yeah, here in a second. Yeah, because we're going to do grades. I just want to get through these guys real quick. Um, let's do Juice. Eight points, four wins, five losses. He lost to Zach, night 16. And then 
final night, he defeated old foe Hiroki Goto um, in 18 minutes and seven seconds. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I lost the screen and I was like calling it from memory. So no, 12, oh, sorry, 12, 12, 12 minutes. Sorry. I was looking at the wrong thing there. So um, any thoughts about Juice defeating Goto and the loss to Zach? Um, so kind of like we mentioned, I feel like, you know, Juice was trying to wrestle Saber's match, but like you mentioned, Saber just kind of ate him up and was kind of able to, you know, overwhelm him there, get the win. The, the Goto match, honestly, I think is probably one of the, the weaker matches that these two have had together. Uh, Ever. Absolutely. Probably is the worst match they've had. Yeah, I went like three and a quarter. There's, there just wasn't much behind it. It just kind of felt like they were kind of going through the paces. There was just no no fire, no urgency, like no no buy-in to really get into this match here. Obviously, both these guys, on the, come the final night, they were both out. And so there's not really much that they were really fighting for except, you know, pride and dignity and, you know, trying to end up a good point total. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Juice... We talked about, I don't know what's been up with him this year, but just kind of real off. It's kind of off tournament for him. Hey, at this point, with how many times he's fought Goto, if he doesn't know how to beat him at this point, then something's really wrong. So I anticipated Juice at least doing that. It is unfortunate he didn't beat Zach. He wasn't able to get the 10 points. Maybe next year. We'll see. But, uh, we move on. We got Goto, eight points, four wins, five losses. He lost to Evil and then Juice the last two nights. He was alive going into night 16, and who knows if he'd won those last two matches. I mean, he might have possibly had a you know a real shot at this thing. But, uh, yeah, man, Goto dropping the ball at the end of the tournament, that is sort of his ML mark. I, I mean, am I right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get more Hiroki Goto than that, right? <laughs> um, I don't have much more to say. We've kind of reviewed the matches. Uh, Yano, six points, three wins, six losses. He lost to Naito, and then he lost to Yoshihashi on the final night, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, we talked about the Naito match. I, I like the Yoshihashi match. It was another pretty entertaining Yano match here. Um, you know, Yoshihashi's whole deal, you know, he's been you know showing this kind of new aggression and really not trying to let anybody punk him out and kind of same thing here for his uh, stable mate Yano. And he wasn't for the games trying to make sure the tape was all gone. Beginning of the match um, ends up getting taped up with his uh, staff into the, the railings there and having to overcome that. But yeah, he's over to overcome Yano shenanigans and get the win here. I agree. We had a question from Germanis. He said, okay, here's an unexpected question, but Hey, it's 2020, which Yoshihashi match from the G1 was your favorite? Here's my unexpected answer versus evil. I was a mark and I'm never a mark now cheering for Yoshihashi. I was so invested in that match and the work rate was good too. And you know what? I agree with him. I think that the Yoshihashi evil match was probably Yoshihashi's best match of the tournament and the one that I enjoyed the most personally. Uh, I think for me, the Yoshihashi Tanahashi match was uh, my favorite Yoshihashi match of the tournament. That was just some great stuff there, and Yoshihashi really bringing it to Tanahashi and trying to defeat the ace. And it was a good back and forth there, and Tanahashi did some great selling. Made Yoshihashi look great in that match, and that's one of my favorites. Also, I, I like the uh, the Goto match as well because Yoshihashi was, was just completely firing up and kind of woke Goto up in that match. 
Yeah, I think all three of those matches are probably amongst the best matches that Yoshihashi had in the tournament. So um, I'm kind of looking on cage match here, and it looks like the Tanahashi match is definitely the one that's rated the highest on the uh, yeah of of the tournament. But Evil follows that with num- at number two, and then also number three, the Naito match, which was also very good. Yeah, I mean, he had bro, he had good matches literally with everybody. Saber, Kenta, Goto. I mean, yeah, you can't go wrong. Yeah, Yoshiasi having a, a really good tournament here. Uh, William asked, do you think Yoshiashi stands to be elevated in 2021? I only ask because I personally think he put in some serious work this G1. Yeah, I mean, this is probably one of his best G1s that we've ever reviewed and that he's had in his career. Had some really good matches. I mean, I don't know how high you could elevate a guy like him who's been beating like a drum for years and is always kind of seeing that bottom level. Um, you know, maybe you can do something with him and never. Maybe you give him a never title shot or something like that. But I really don't see him getting like pushed super hard or, you know, getting elevated to a higher level. You got a, you got an awesome utility player that people can – invest into who can be trusted to have good matches and be called upon to have good stories. I mean, he doesn't necessarily need a title, although it seems like the quest for more gold is in the future for him. So, um, yeah, and that's pretty much going to do it for the B block. We covered Toriano, Yoshihashi. Um, let's talk about the G one finals. Now, aside from the actual final match, me personally, I don't really want to, go too in depth with like what happened in the matches, but there's a lot of storytelling elements that came out of this G1 final on this evening. Yeah. So let's start with the first matchup here. We had Suzuki Goon. We had Doki, El Esperado, Taichi and Zack Sabre Jr. Defeating the chaos team of Hiroki Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, Toriyano and Yoshihashi. Uh, the whole angle here in this matchup was to set up a future never six man title match. And, Kind of a big thing here. Uh, Doki got the pin over Yoshihashi. Um, Saber and Taichi hit the Zack Mephisto driver on Yoshihashi. Draped Doki over Yoshihashi to get the pin there. Doki was holding up all three belts after the matchup here. So clearly we're going to get a Suzuki Goon versus Chaos. Never title, uh, six-man title match. Probably on one of these Row 2 Power Struggle shows that are coming up. Uh, we did have a question here from Ready to Stone Cold Bob Saget. Now that Doki <laughs> has squashed Yoshihashi, can he finally get a new pipe? That thing looks like the rod in Tenzon's ankle. Nah, he <laughs> needs to keep it, keep the bent pipe. <laughs> um, uh, funny thing, a lot of people were kind of complaining about Yoshihashi getting pinned by Doki, but I'm like, how else are you going to set up a never six-man title shot? Make no mistakes about it. Goto and Ishii are not eating the pinfalls in this trio. <laughs> right. It, it's still going to be Yoshihashi. Right. And clearly, I think the story will be Yoshihashi trying to get revenge on Doki. And I'm sure he will hit Doki with the karma in on the, that title match and get the win for the team there. Post-match promo was really funny because Zach doesn't speak fluent Japanese and Taichi doesn't speak, you know, English. They're saying completely opposite things the whole time. Like, Zach's bearing the never six man titles saying that once him or whoever wins it, they're going to give all three belts to Doki so he can just carry him around by himself. And then 
on the flip side, Tai Chi's like, we're going to win these and carry the belts around. So we're double champions, just like all the other double champions in the company. And then, like, literally, Will's like, or I'm sorry, not Will, Zach's like, I don't want those belts. We're going to give them all Doki. Then a question Uh, here from uh, Purezo Machine. Has a boyhood dream come true for Jeremy? Doki finally gets a title shot in New Japan. Oh, you're the Doki mark on this show? I didn't really realize I became that big of a Doki mark. He he was starting to win me over. Kind of, I thought I was the bigger Doki mark of the two of us. I, I think you, you kind of started catching on to Doki before I did. but Man, I, well, yeah, because it started with me at last year's Super Juniors. I was already like... Yeah, you, yeah, you were way like last year. You were, yeah, you were on the Doki bandwagon last year. I was year. like, he's kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> People are like he sucks, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Doki definitely needs to lose here, right? <laughs> yeah, he yeah he needs to eat a karma and yeah chaos needs to retain. Well, the good news here we we've got the uh, we're going to talk about it, but we've got the full lineup for Power Struggle, and there's no mention of the Never Six Man Title, so this will probably be a headliner one of the evenings leading on the road to Power Struggle. Right, I believe there's going to be three Road Two shows that will be aired on NJPWWorld.com. So I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure that will be the main event on one of those nights. Second match of the night, we had the LIJ team of Hiromu and Shingo. I think that's the first time they've tagged together that I recall, uh, defeating the Suzuki Goon team of Minoru Suzuki and Yoshinabu Kanemaru. And the big story here, Hiromu and Kanemaru sort of angling against one another leading into Super Juniors, but also the prospect of a LIJ Suzuki Goon rematch for the junior titles. Um, that was really hinted at quite a bit here, as well as the continuing feud between Shingo Takagi and Minoru Suzuki for the Never title. Yeah, so post-match after uh, LIJ gets the win here, uh, Hiromu hit the time bomb on Kanemaru Suzuki and Shingo continue to brawl post-match. They have a pull-apart brawl, and then Hiromu grabs the junior titles and, um, and you know points to it, and they push it hard on commentary that they would be challenging. Hiromu went over to the commentary team and was calling out for Bushi um, so they could challenge for these tag team titles. So that could potentially also be something that's coming up on one of these Road to Power Struggle shows with um, Suzuki Goon defending against LIJ. Uh, something we, we failed to mention on on that B-Block night, we did see Hiromu come come back there. He was uh, one of the reasons why Sonata won. He helped Sonata uh, defeat Evil there and kind of fight off uh, Dick Togo. Oh, dude, I didn't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Hiromu did uh, cut a promo post-match match. Uh, talking about how he can't go into the Super Juniors with the t- without a title of some sort. Otherwise, he'll be a loser. So he, him and Bushi need to win these junior tag titles before Super Junior starts in November. However, he does, I don't know if anyone's told Hiromu that like sometimes holding those tag belts means you might not win the Super Juniors. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to stay away from those belts, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that brings us to the third match of the evening. We had Hiroshi Tanahashi, Jeff Cobb, Juice Robinson, and Master Wato with Hiroshi Tenzon defeating the Bullet Club team of Gato, Jay White, Kenta, and the Bone Soldier, Taiji Ishimori. Um, yeah, another, I mean, Hantai Bullet Club uh, multi-man match. Um, they're, the big 
you know, feud that was sort of set up here was the Tanahashi uh, Kenta feud that sort of started during the G1, you know, Kenta bashing the red briefcase over Tanahashi's head, uh, damaging the briefcase all tournament long. He's been uh, walking around with a, a tape that says something to the effect that Tanahashi's head was here. So that was really played up in a major way during this match. Yep, and uh, so Tanahashi ends up getting the win for the team there by getting the, the Cloverleaf hold on Gato, forcing Gato to tap. And like you mentioned, you know, post-match, he's pointing at the briefcase and him and Kenta kind of jaw-jacking and uh, we'll talk about what's coming with Power Struggle. But yeah, Tanahashi will be, you know, challenging for that the U.S. briefcase and, you know, post-match promos talking about so, warning. So, so, so fuck Juice, right? Yes. <laughs> Um, and, and, and talking about wanting the, the U.S. title, not he's you know he mentioned Moxley, not sure what his situation is, and so I know there there kind of been speculation that they they want to do a Moxley Tanahashi match for the Tokyo Dome. Obviously, not sure if that could happen due to travel restrictions and having to quarantine, and Mox being the AEW World Champion. We'll get into that when the time comes, but that's clearly the direction of trying to get Tanahashi in this U.S. title picture here. Uh, Viking Payne asked us He said John Moxley's not making it into Japan anytime soon AEW would not let him work for New Japan on American soil So why hasn't New Japan just stripped him of the US title yet Just give the damn belt to Kent already and be done with it Yeah I'm not sure what the situation is. I know they said with um, you know COVID restrictions They were like, extending the limit on some of the title reigns On when they would strip them of the titles Um so I think, dude, there's there's money to be made. That's the that's the long and short of it. Like Mox, from the time since the last time he's been in New Japan, which was February, he's exponentially raised his stock in the world of wrestling in North America in AEW. And why would you, if you have the potential to bring him in as a defending champion against a guy? Anybody, whether it's Okada, Abushi, Tanahashi, Kenta, anyone who he hasn't fought yet in a major capacity, you're going to draw huge money. You're going to draw tickets. You're going to draw subscriptions to their on-demand service. No, you do not strip him of the title. Now, I know the, the traditionalists in us uh, say that they should because that's what they've done in the past, but at the end of the day, it's still business. and. They want to. They want to do business, and there is a chance. I don't know if it will totally work, but there is a chance. Come Wrestle Kingdom time, you know, two weeks quarantine here, two weeks quarantine back in the states. It's around that holiday time. There's no pay per views going on. You know, he could tape some of his shows ahead of time. Tape some of his matches. I mean, they could find creative ways to work him into the shows like they did last year. While he goes overseas and does his thing, I mean, it's not out of the question at all. In fact, they'll probably end up doing that if I were to guess. Yeah, I can definitely, especially with them, like you know, not working Christmas, and I'm, I'm gonna guess in December they'll probably do more tape stuff. And you know, even at the beginning of the pandemic, he wasn't able to travel to Georgia when they were doing those shows at a QT spot, and they they found ways to kind of get him, you know, in the show with like promos and stuff like that. So they could do promo packages. Um, I mean, he could drop the belt between now and Russell Kingdom if they're they're worried about that kind of situation. Um, but yeah, there's there's ways to work around it, and I, I I'm counting on 
them finding a way to get Mox into the country for Wrestle Kingdom, especially we know we which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, I think it was after this matchup we had the announcement of uh, Wrestle Kingdom 15 officially being announced for January 4th and January 5th, 2021. Yeah, it uh, that announcement came after the third match of the night, and I was just so excited because I was like, finally we have some news on Wrestle Kingdom, and then when they showed the Tokyo Dome, I was like, oh my god, they are going to be in the Tokyo Dome. Amazing. And then when they were like, we're doing the fourth and fifth again, I was like, fuck yes. <laughs> Although... Part of me is like, I'm also a little leery of it because I had some criticisms of what they did last year, but it does open a lot of opportunities for different storytelling op, you know, elements. A lot more people get chances to get on the card. Who knows? Maybe they learn from their, you know, mistakes last year and they, they, you know, do something different, especially if there doesn't happen to be a double gold dash where we get, you know, the same four guys in three of the biggest, you know, matches of, 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 you know, that if, if you don't do that, it creates more opportunity for big star performers. Like, I think that's a pretty exciting thing. So, um, we will wait and see, but I'm right now I am anticipating that Mox is on that show. Yeah. So am I. And, um, you know, we had something that was sent to us, um, in our messenger chat and it was, uh, something from, uh, Kadani, talking about his uh, goals for the 50th anniversary in 2022. And he mentions continuing running Tokyo Dome shows two days in a row and uh, getting back on their uh, terrestrial primetime broadcasting. So it looks like, you know, the plans are to kind of keep doing two Dome shows going forward. Well, look how much money they made this past year. It's one of the only things that kept them afloat during the pandemic. Can you imagine what kind of financial situation they might have been in? Had there not been a pandemic, it would have been awesome for them. You know, maybe Harold could have kept his job. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after that, we got the fourth match of the night. Great Okan and Will Ospreay with B Priestley. The Empire defeated the team of Chaos, Kazushiko Okada, and Show 12 minutes and 36 seconds. Yeah, so we saw Ospreay kind of using a new finisher here. Worked on the leg of Show to set up a figure four for the submission victory here. Um, you know... What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is kind of the first in-ring match that we're seeing in New Japan for the great Okan, the former Oka. Um, and I was not really digging what I was seeing. Like you mentioned earlier, Oka has all these great kind of amateur backgrounds at MMA, you know, mixed martial arts backgrounds and, you know, a, a legit, you know, badass. And they have him out here just doing Mongolian chops and kind of, you know, kind of being this kind of big lumbering guy instead of kind of what he showed during his young lionhood and the great suplexes and the kind of the great fire and some of the stuff like that. So yeah, I wasn't really digging, you know, Okarn here. Ocon, excuse me. The move that Will Ospreay used is uh, what's called the figure eight leg lock, uh, popularized by the great Charlotte Flair. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was watching uh, Raw and SmackDown, and he was like, she won like 17 championships with that shit. I could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it's different. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see if he keeps using that as his uh, finish. But um, yeah, man, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you here. I mean, uh, Great Okan is working a Jiangshi gimmick. For those of you who don't know what that is, it is a mythical undead creature sometimes referred to as a hopping vampire slash hopping zombie from Chinese slash Eastern, uh, like Asian folklore. Um, these particular types of undead characters always dress in garb from the King dynasty, which is how he's dressed specifically. And if you notice when he was on his way out, he was making weird gestures with his body and stuff. That's cause he's working a Jiangxi gimmick. Um, I had heard that Great Okan had dropped this aspect of the gimmick over in England because it was not getting over and was sort of doing more of a badass thing. Maybe I'm mistaken there, but uh, it looks like he has reverted to it. Um, I don't know, man. Him and Watto, the two of them, they look like some DBZ like prelim geeks that get beat up by like Yamcha, Tien, (laughs) Krillin. I don't get this at all. Yeah, Okan's looking like Android 19, man. Yeah. Yo, I like Android 19. (laughs) That's the Android with the mohawk, right? No, that's 16. Oh, 19 19 is the the one with the dark hair? No, that's 17. 19 is the fat, fat, like, white-faced one with the pointy hat thing. 19's the scary one. Uh, the one, yeah, he was killing uh, Goku and shit. Right until uh, Trunks came in, or Vegeta came. Somebody came in. Vegeta came and fucked him up. Yeah, <laughs> or whoever. Maybe yeah, it was Trunks. No, yeah. yeah, it was it was Vegeta because Trunks comes afterward. Yeah, it was Vegeta that came back because Goku had the heart attack or whatever. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, yeah, he is. So I don't know. Um, we're we're definitely going to be getting more of Will and Okada down the line. It looks like we're getting Okan and Okada in the short term. Nothing here impressed me for Okan. Um, bunch of Mongolian chops. I don't know. I don't have much to say there. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on B Priestley's kind of interference and her, her being a second ooh. for Osprey? I had no problem with her being a second. I had no problem with her b- being out there at all. I, in fact, I didn't notice much about it at all. But I did want to say Osprey and B Priestley are the most awkward fucking couple when it comes to backstage <laughs> promos their backstage promos are shit if if you thought i was like uh you know judgmental of osprey's solo promos let me tell you b and will together cannot cut good promos the, the first night she got back there and she's like this let me tell you about this boy right here he is amongst the best wrestlers that are out there i was like what what kind of heel says amongst the best that are out there nah do you think stephanie mcmahon would ever been like well triple h is amongst the best nah he's the fucking game (laughs) he is the best wrestler in the world (laughs) you'll stay among and then he was like he was and then will was like let me tell you about this girl she went into stardom and won the world title and then she dropped it but she's SWA champion now. She is one of the best. And that's literally something he said. And I was like, one of the best? What are you talking about? And then at the end of it, he was like, all right, well, we're starting this new shit. We're going to be the Empire. It's going to be great. Hit me up if you want in. And I was like, hit me up if you want in. 
Do you think Hulk Hogan would have been like, hit me up, brother, if you wanted this NWO? <laughs> <game?"> like, <laughs> what? Yeah, man. Promos, uh, not great there. Uh, but, you know, with w- this whole Empire thing, you know, one thing we, we need to talk about, do you think that the NJPW collection app commercials that we've been seeing over and over and over again were a foreshadowing of Osprey starting his own unit? Only, the only way that that proves true is if he gets Hiromu to join the Empire. Mm, yeah, gets Hiromu to join in. Oh, yeah, I got Hiromu. <laughs> Diablo Loco. Diablo, Diablo Loco. Loco. <laughs> oh my gosh. Nah, I much prefer the Genji Yoshiku or whatever it's called uh, promotion. Oh yeah, with commercial. the uh, the young lions. You like that commercial a lot. <laughs> I love that commercial. <laughs> oh man. So any other thoughts here on this matchup? Nah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so let's move to the semi so, man. Here's the here's the other thought. Show got his ass. Handed to him the whole match. He did nothing but sell. Yeah, got got beat, and then uh, B hit the dragon screw on him on the ropes like she was Tanahashi, which led to uh, Osprey getting the figure four on show to get the submission victory there. So that takes us to the semi-main event of the evening. We had the Bullet Club team of Evil in Yujiro Takahashi with Dick Togo defeating the LIJ team of Bushi and Tetsuya Naito. Interesting pairing here of Evil and Yujiro is based off of what happened with Yujiro and Jay in the tournament, which kind of kicked off Evil and Jay kind of throwing promos back and forth with each other and taking on Bushi and Naito here. And, um, I mean, fine matchup, obviously. Bro, bro you're, you're, you're trying to spark controversy where there's no controversy. Like... They explained it to us very clearly. Like, Yujiro was going to do the job for Jay, but then Jay didn't come out dressed in his gear, and he, like, you know, Yujiro just felt disrespected, and so he just got in his feels. It has nothing to do with evil. has nothing to do with conspiracy against Jay White. There is no inner turmoil within Bullet Club. Stop trying to make a story where there's no story, Jeremy. Like, Bullet Club is fine. fine. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see about that. What is not fine is the fact that we are setting up for another Evil versus Naito double title match. That is not fine. The fourth fourth match of theirs in five months, and I don't ever want to see the first three matches that they've had ever again. Yeah, Based on their G1 match and all the other matches, I'm just, like, not looking forward to this. That was a big angle right. here. Evil defeats. You had, Go ahead. Like, you had a chance with with Naito having a resurgent G1. It's like, okay, we, we broke ourselves away from this evil shit. You could have I mean, Sonata, just, Sonata beat him in the tournament. I mean, he was in the B-block final, like... Maybe go that way. I don't know what to tell you. Do something different. Instead, they want to go with fucking Watanabe again. Bro. It's not going to be our fault when people look back on Naito's grand, long, historic title reign and be like, yo, that was shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Evil, Yeah, he he gets the the win over Bougie here. He's the Darkness Falls and the Scorpion Death Drop. And, of course, post-match, they they choke out Naito. 
and Evil holds up the the double title. So clearly, we're like he mentioned that's the direction we're going in. Um, yeah, I don't know why they didn't go with Sonata, why they didn't go with Kenta. Um, since they actually had a, a pretty good matchup here, that could have been a, a fresh. Also, I guess with Kenta with the briefcase, I guess he was tied up. But yeah, Sonata would have been a better option. But they could have just gone the Cody Rhodes route. Remember, Cody Rhodes just showed up at the end of the G one and like fucked up juice and like skipped the whole line and got a title shot. They could have just had someone new like fight this man on the G1 finals and 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 earn his shot. Like it didn't have to be evil, man. Like there's no re- uh it's, it's stupid. Also, evil doing, you know, reverse DDTs and scorpion deathlocks. Like I know they try to make it sound like he's some Choshu mark. I think this man is a 1997 Sting mark. Sounds like to me. Yeah, I mean, where you think he got the idea to to put on the dark, you know, paint and everything? That this is he's just trying to be Japanese Sting. Right, he's got the the black gear on. You know, the black singlet. He's doing scorpion death drops, scorpion death locks. Like this, this man thinks he's you know a, a heel Sting. Yeah. So yeah, that that wraps up that matchup there, which takes us to the main event of the evening, the G1 Climax 30 final matchup, the A Block winner, the Golden Star, Kota Ibushi, taking on the B Block winner, the Cold Skull Sonata. Okay. So I'll start out here. I loved this match i went into this match with very little anticipation just like last year's g1 i mean we've seen these two guys wrestle on two other occasions both in the g1 the match from 2018 in particular was very good the match from 2019 i was not as high on but very good matches and um aside from that there's really no narrative here very little you know run-ins between these two guys in terms of storyline very little history um both guys deserving to be in the g1 finals i mean kota bushi making history being the first man to be in the finals three consecutive times if he wins it he becomes the the only the third man to win the g1 twice in a row uh, along with hiroyoshi tenzan and masahiro chono chono actually made his way out uh, before the match started to cut a promo and you know you know m- make a huge scene and then on the opposite end you got Sonata who is someone who for years has shown promise been talked about as being someone who's going to break out be the next big star but has yet to do so always chokes during the big opportunities the big matches the big tournament you know uh, chances this was his chance to show up and show out and um sounds like there's a great narrative there, but just the, the, the lack of, you know, I don't know, I guess, uh, contact between these two guys kind of just seemed strange, but we go into the match and the big story is Abushi is destroyed from having been in a killer block, like the a block. And then having that destructive kicking match with Kota Abushi is like his, uh, leg is all, huh? Tai Chi. What did I say? You said with Kota Ibushi. Oh, yeah. Well, he is Kota Ibushi. <laughs> uh, with Taichi. And um, his leg is just all taped up. And 
these two guys go into some of the best chain grappling sequences that you're going to see all year long. I know a lot of people maybe might not be as high on that portion of the match, but for me, I don't know. Um, being someone who's in training to wrestle, but also just being a mark for that style of wrestling, I thought that we saw some of the smoothest, best examples of chain grappling. Sort of what I thought we were going to get from, like, say, Sabre and Sonata, and where that match kind of failed, this match sort of, um, you know, succeeded. After we go through that period, we start getting to a section where uh, these two guys just go blow for blow and start trading strikes. And typically, it's not somewhere you, where you'd want to be if you're fighting Ibushi, unless your name is Tomohiro Ishii. Uh, except for in this instance, Ishii or Ibushi is so beat up that Sonata gets the better of every single striking exchange the whole entire match. And every time he puts something on Abushi, Abushi's just flailing and falling and selling and, and hurting. And um, it's not like Sonata was putting extra on it. It wasn't like his fighting spirit was so high. It was just Abushi was like torn up. <laughs> and then uh, Sonata proceeds to um, attack the leg and put him in a figure four leg lock, almost finishing off Abushi. And it's almost as if he realizes that that's such a weak area and he doesn't want to win without honor that he stops attacking the leg for the rest of the match, which might have been to his undoing. But he decides that he wants to try to basically beat Abushi at his own game. So they start playing this game of anything you can do, I can do better. And they start you know, exchanging big spots, exchanging big holds, big moves, and they're like trying to one-up the other. And that's kind of where Abushi was able to get back in the match. And all throughout, you know, Sonata would throw a big strike and Abushi would sell it. it. Just looked like Abushi was fighting with everything he had, but just couldn't keep up with this guy. And Abushi was just putting on a master class in selling, honestly. And then, quite honestly, the last nine to ten minutes are so great. Like, we. A lot of people complained about the slow nature of this match, but for me, there might have been a measured pace, but by the time we got to the 25-minute mark, I couldn't believe we were at 25 minutes, and neither could my girlfriend, who is not really she, – she, she's a fan of this, but she's not as accustomed to this style of wrestling, and she thought the match was fantastic as well, probably because I was marking out the whole time. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the last – the false finishes – the hope spots, the reversals, the kick, the major kickouts, the major pinfalls, like they just did. They just, it, I'm a big fan of storytelling. This is maybe one of the best in ring storytelling matches of the whole tournament. Now I'm not going to sit here and say it's the best match of the tournament because it's not, but I think it was a completely fitting final for a G1 climax. It, greatly exceeded my expectations for what this match would be. And when Abushi was able to overcome all the odds, considering how bad of a year he's had, considering the, the major losses he suffered at the Tokyo Dome this past year, after winning last year, and that he's able to come back and redeem himself, 4.75. And I'm seeing people who hate this match. If you guys hate this match, you must hate pro wrestling. I don't know what to tell you. 
Now, I, I don't hate this match, but I definitely did have some criticism on it that kind of affected maybe me putting it higher than where, where I have it. And so one of the things, so there was a, kind of this weird spot towards the beginning of the match where um, Sonata goes for a drop kick, Abushi ducks under the drop kick, but he gets caught in the head by like um, Sonata's like elbow or forearm, bonks on the head, kind of rolls outside, and he looks out of it. And like throughout this match, I was I was kind of worried about Abushi. I kind of felt like he had a concussion. He might have been out of it. He seemed a little bit off. There was also another spot there where like Sonata was supposed to like crawl under his legs, and he like ended up like stopping him. And then they had to like kind of reset and go on to the next spot. And there was just a couple other like just like reversals and transitions that just weren't as smooth as they typically are in a Kota Ibushi match. And that could be because he was, like you mentioned, selling the beatings from the whole A-block night. But it was also kind of like, is he selling or is he actually, you know, hurt from, that? you know, getting bonked on the head on that, that uh, botched dropkick spot. And so that was kind of one of the things there that kind of, you know, Made the match a little bit lower for me, and just some of those kind of um, those boxes, some of those kind of transitions there. Uh, but besides that, I mean, like this match was thirty-five minutes. It did not feel like you. It did not feel long. Uh, you know, the minutes. longest G one match in history. Yeah, the uh, the twenty twenty-five minute call went, and like I didn't know where the time went. Um, and you mentioned that that closing streak was just incredible. The you know the the European clutch uh, near fall on Ibushi, which was like two point nine eight seconds, was just absolutely incredible. Um, you know the crowd not being allowed to like cheer, even they, they got a little bit audible there and kind of gasp and were like losing their minds. That was a yeah. great near fall. I thought that was it. And then you know Ibushi hitting the the Kamagoye and Sonata kicking out there, um, leading to another Kamagoye. That was great. And I think another thing, too, that might have thrown some people off from this match, it was, like you mentioned, Ibushi's coming in, um, you know, selling all everything from the A block, coming in from that, that last match with Tai Chi, only having one day to rest from that, that kick fest. And I think when people think Kota Ibushi, they, they're thinking of more of a fast pace. They're thinking about him flipping all over the place, doing golden triangles, um, doing some more kind of high-risk maneuvers, and we didn't get that here. There was a tease of the golden triangle, but he didn't quite get it, and... But Kota Ibushi's kind of, he's kind of, you know, gone away or kind of changed up his style. He's not really relying on a lot of the high spots that he used to. And he's kind of done that throughout the whole tournament. Like we mentioned, he was really facing everybody in their style of matchup. He wrestled Suzuki. He's wrestling, you know, this, you know, shoot style MMA match. He's wrestling Ishii. They're, they're slugging at each other. He's, you know, wrestling all these different Tai Chi's. You know, they're going to have a, you know, a 20 minute kick match. So he, he's not really relying on, you know, the Phoenix Splash, the, the, the Golden Triangle, all these kind of, you know, fast, high-paced movies. Definitely evolved his style a lot. And I think with two typically fast-paced guys like Sonata and Ibushi, I think people might have been expecting more of a fast pace, more flips, and more, quote-unquote, cool moves. Did he try to go for a Phoenix Splash that failed? He did some kind of... I'm trying to remember if that's from this match, because someone this weekend did a Phoenix Splash, but instead of landing straight, they added a corkscrew at the end of it and missed. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure it was a Bushi. Yeah, I think he tried to do like some kind of like corkscrew Phoenix Splash thing from the top and, and, and missed. Here's the thing, man. 
like Abushi's an artist. People really criticized last year's Jay White match quite a bit as well. And for me, it was my match of the year. Now this one, it's not my match of the year. It's not um, even my match of the tournament. And I'm not uh, alluding to the idea that it's as good as Jay White and Ibushi was last year. But I will say this. Typically, I would say, generally speaking, maybe you can agree or disagree with me. I tend to be probably more harsh in my grading of matches than most people. Would you say so? Yeah, I would agree. But I don't pimp shit that's not good. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Like, if I don't... Last year, I pimped the shit out of Jay White and Ibushi, and a lot of people on first watch were very anti the match for a lot of different reasons, because there's a lot of reasons you could have potentially been. And almost everyone I've ever talked to that has gone back and rewatched the match is like, wow, the match was way better than I remembered it being. I can guarantee you that this is going to be a match, mark my words, that holds up higher than some of the... 5.25 star rated matches of this tournament. It just is. This match fucking ruled. Um, speaking of the botches you mentioned, I did notice them. They did exist. For me, I'm the kind of fan where unless they actively detract from the, the match, they're not going to bother me in the sense that they were already trying to tell a story where Abushi was struggling. And they, whether that was the intention or not, they leaned into it. Um, there the, the botches were not noticeable enough to be like, oh, they really like they fucked up. The match is ruined now. You know, in fact, in some instances, I might even argue they added to the sense of danger. The only one that really bothered me was that one that you mentioned that was weird, where uh, Sonata tried to go under his legs and then he stalled, and then they were just kind of in an awkward position for a minute. That yeah. was kind of strange, and. Yes, Abushi clearly got caught on his noggin off of an elbow from a drop kick, but uh, the match was just—I don't know—I love the match. I thought the match was really, really, really great. I went for four and three quarters. Um, I think it was a very fitting final. Now, I've also noticed a lot of people been like, "This isn't in the same caliber as the last five years G1s," and I'm like, "The last five years G1 finals were all five star affairs." <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's a super, super, super high lofty like level you, you're going to hold it against. But it was still a fantastic match. It just was. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, is it going to be in the like bottom, you know, three or four out of the 10? Probably. But it, it doesn't matter to me. I thought the match was awesome. And Sonata's not even a guy I love. Yeah, I think that, that could have put an effect on some people too, just the fact like Sonata really didn't have any like standout performances leading up to this matchup. I think people were kind of cold on him kind of coming into this, this main event. I think some people are cold on Abushi. I was cold on Abushi. I said on this show when we did our preview that he wasn't even going to get double digits this year because of him being tied to a tag team storyline, which may or may not be the case going forward. Like, and I was clearly wrong. Um, I think you and I briefly alluded to the idea of a redemption story, but we, I don't think either of us really thought he was winning this thing. Yeah. A, a lot of people, not many people predicted Bushi winning or even winning the a block. And it makes total sense when you look back at it, like 
you you have him lose at the dome two nights in a row, and what? How do you pay him back? How do you kind of set you know get redemption, set him back up? You have him win the G one two years in a row, third time in the finals, and you, you set him up for a, a really big push. Yeah, um, I mean, kind of similar to the Tanahashi story arc a couple years ago. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- another thing, a lot of there are people who don't. There's a there's a large contingency of the North American fans that are just not into Sonata. There's also a cross section of fans that are diehard Sonata fans, diehard Lij fans, and they thought this was gonna be Sonata's guaranteed like moment. And I think the fact that he maybe didn't have a great tournament, and also even though the match is great, maybe didn't emote enough maybe he didn't connect enough maybe didn't you know perform at the lofty level people hoped he could or would and then also just the fact that he lost might also be a reason why people are down on it aside from the pacing the style and and, and everything of that nature but yeah but i i just genuinely feel at the end of the day the match was i didn't even take it I, I literally laid out the whole structure of the match for for you guys. I took no notes. I didn't need to. I've watched the match one time. It's a simple but effective and beautiful story that they told. It, it's one of the best wrestling stories you're going to see all year. Yeah, it was a great match, kind of a great way to cap off the tournament there. and Definitely a special moment for Kota Ibushi there winning back-to-back G1s. Yeah. So we've got a bunch of questions here. Let's run through these. So uh, first from Ready User Rambo and Slam Pig. Says, Is Kota Ibushi's ability to work in so many diverse styles at a high level underappreciated by the general wrestling audience and or the NJPW fandom? Is there a style he does not excel in? Uh, there is, there's not a style he doesn't excel in. I don't care what promotion it is in what style it is what match type you give him um so far my viewing of kotobushi as a wrestler he's he doesn't only excel but he is the best in the world at every style of wrestling that you could possibly imagine um i do think that that is underappreciated by people because a lot of people take a look at him they see the J-pop haircut, the you know beautiful face, the, the body, the classic pro you know two thousands pro gear, and they think, oh, we've got like a high flying you know this high flyer Abushi, and it's like that man doesn't only have to high fly. Some of the best matches I've ever seen him in the Okada match at, at Wrestle Kingdom this past year. The match with Jay White last year at, at uh, the G1 Finals; those were not high flying matches. Now, did he do some high flying? Yes, but like this man doesn't just have to be that guy who comes off the balcony and sets himself on fire with you know fireworks. This is a guy who can do anything on any level, and it's been long overdue that they get they give him a true true run at the top in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And um, oh, one thing I did. And I'll let you answer the question, Jeremy, but one thing I want to mention, a lot of Kenny Omega digs during 
the commentating and during the post matches all throughout the tournament, Kota Bushi kept mentioning how he was loyal, how he was true and how he wasn't going to leave and how he was going to be faithful. And then this was something that was said multiple times on commentary, not just by the English, but the Japanese commentaries as well. And then it was something that was said in the post-match interviews and everything. And every single time that Kota Bushi said that, I just thought to myself, well, who wasn't true? Who wasn't faithful? Who did leave? There's only one person that Kota Bushi and New Japan could possibly be talking about. And I'm not even being a conspiracy theorist when I say this. They're talking about Kenny Omega. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. They're throwing so much shade at Kenny. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So I just thought that was I thought that was interesting, and yeah. yeah, I think everyone wants him to just be Kenny, and I think he can do a lot more than just be one of the Golden Lovers. Like he's a lot more than that. Right. I definitely think he he like I mentioned, he kind of gets pigeonholed in this this high flyer mold, and like like I said, people are expecting golden triangles, phoenix splashes, you know, moon salts, and jumping off the balcony every single match. And that's not what you're going to get. And I think a lot of times maybe even like casual fans who know Obabushi, like you mentioned, of being a golden lover and for, you know, doing the wild kind of stuff, kind of pitch a hole in that box and expect that from him every time when we've seen that he's so versatile. He can wrestle a technical wrestling match. He can wrestle a strike base, a strong style match. He can do a high flying match. He can do a plunder match. So there's so many different things that he can excel at at a high level. I do think, um, like Rambones is saying, it, it does go unappreciated by the audience at times. Bro, if you, if you, if they sent him to Effie's gay brunch and made him do some sort of drag show wrestling, I'm sure that like Kotobushi would like be the best drag show wrestler that the world has ever seen. Like it doesn't matter what kind of, re- I don't care what it is. You put him in an exploding time bomb death hell. <laughs> you know, you send him to freaking big japan and put him in a jun kasai light tube death match like this man would fucking rule like he's the best <laughs> you, you send that man to the raw underground i mean knocking folks out yes <laughs> although that it seems like that should sh- shut down <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh next question here for i'm ready either just a little bear zero one it says for context how big was chono's appearance in new japan after so long of an absence was it that long of an absence? Doesn't he show up at the G1 final every year? That's what I was trying to remember because on English commentary, they, did, they mentioned it had been a while since they seen Chono. And I was thinking to myself, like, doesn't he all, like, I feel like in the last, at least the last couple of years, he's always shown up either on commentary or, you know, afterwards. So I could be wrong, but I feel like, Maybe he wasn't at last year's, but I know he was there like the couple years before that. So I, I don't feel like it was that long at all. Like, I don't know. Hey, it usually they bring in at least Chono, sometimes Muto. And for the 30th G1, what a great thing to have. So it was cool. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, definitely a cool little touch there. They should have Chono do a, a return to the ring. One last run. bro i hate bro one thing quick i hated chono growing up i didn't know who chono was as a kid and he always showed up in wcw and i was like this mid ass asian wrestler i didn't know who he was or what he did he had no character he had no gimmick he had no story and he would just show up and fuck people up and it'd be long and it would be boring 
I hated Masahiro Chono. I hated him so much. I'd have to watch these pay-per-views and be like, why is Steve Austin jobbing to Masahiro Chono? <laughs> I don't understand this. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, next question here from our good old buddy Rich Latta. He says, I don't feel like Sonata has it. He feels like someone has stuck around long enough for it to finally kind of be his turn. He doesn't feel like he's out to grab the crown like many others that have been elevated to the G1 finals. For example, I feel like I saw Jay White trying to do the match of his life last year at the end, but Sonata feels so lethargic aside from his gimmick. It just feels like a directive has been sent for both Evil and Sonata this year, but I don't think either of them stack up to the lofty main event standards of guys in the past. We are bound to come out of the greatness of the last few years at some point, so maybe this is natural, but it doesn't feel like Sonata is a top guy. Am I wrong about this? Sonata's not a top guy. Um, It feels like he should be. He's been given every opportunity in the past. I remember when we criticized him a year or so, maybe two years ago, talking about how he's a really great athlete, a really great performer. He has a lot of tools in the bag, but he's just not at the lofty level of some of the top guys in the company. And we even had uh, kickback from some of our listeners who were like, you're set, you're, you know, you're comparing him to Okada and Omega and people of that nature. And like, he's not there yet. And so you're like writing him off and we weren't, we were actually giving him leeway and being like, he has time to get there, you know? But he was undoubtedly not at the level of like a Kota Ibushi or Kenny Omega or a Hiroshi Tanahashi. He just wasn't. And were years passed, and he was already old then, relatively speaking, and he's older now. He got chances in every company. He got chances in what Wrestle One. He got chances in All Japan. He got chances here, TNA, like. All these different companies wanted to like put the rocket ship on this dude and like l- let it run, and there is something missing. I don't, I can't say what it is. I don't know, but I would not build my company around Sonata. And some people who really like him might say it's self fulfilling prophecy. It's like, oh, you book him that way, that's how he turns out. But it's like, but look at what happens when you try and push him in, like, say a G one. He only wrestles up to the level of the guys that are around him. We've always said that. And who were his two best matches in the G1 against? Tanahashi and Ibushi, two guys who are vastly better workers than him, and they carried him to better matches than he's capable of. Let's see what happens when he wrestled all the other guys who would be considered lesser workers than him. He didn't bring them up to any sort of level. Sonata didn't give anybody the best match of their tournament. Like, he just is, he's not capable of being a top guy. He's, like, capable of being a guy who is a credible challenger to a top guy, but he can't carry a company. And he can't be a, he can't be a big five guy. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, And maybe, maybe I'll be proven wrong one day, but I bet you he'll never be a top five guy in New Japan. Ever. And if he does, it probably will be a down period. Yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing him as a top guy and seeing him as you know a main eventer. Honestly, at this point, I, I think I know people have been joking about it, but I think it's serious. I I, I do see him at almost taking a Hiroki Goto type of route, just with the ways that he's been booked and kind of failed over the years. You know, 
Bailey goes goes way better than Sonata. Right, in ring goes way better. I just mean like a, a kayfabe kind of status. Like he's been, you know getting all these opportunities and, and losing, and so I I think they don't they're not ever going to really pull the trigger on him and and put the title on him. But like you mentioned, the only, the, the only thing I will say I want to throw a caveat in there before you continue. There seems to be some sort of cultural uh, difference where, from what we're told constantly is that he's a huge star with the Japanese audience. So maybe there is something with the domestic audience where he is connecting, but I don't usually hear it or see it even in those post-match promos. Right. I mean, he's done the the whole like light up thing, put your cell phones up lights out. And that's been cool. And the crowd seems to dig that. But overall, yeah, I I just don't know. It's it's just one of those things like like you mentioned. We we like you said from day one, we've been saying it. He wrestles up to the level of who he's in there with, and you know, a top guy should be a guy that's giving people their best matches in that B, especially in that B block. He should have been. There's no reason why right Seiya Sonata should not have been a standout guy in the B block. And even even when he came back and was like. Sure, the first few matches he he dropped three in a row, so it's like oh redemption. Well, redeem yourself. And he never really did redeem himself. He just kind of stacked up the points and was like, okay, here we are. I don't know, man. Um, there, I know there's a lot of Lij fans who are listening and a lot of Sonata fans who are listening who don't like what we're saying right now. But dude, he can't wrestle up to the level of the top guys in New Japan. And he never has been able to. Right. He he needs to. And that's be- a true fact. It's and 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 we said the same thing about Evil. I think he's better than Evil, but Evil had a better G one than Sonata did. As crazy as it sounds. Yeah, that is, that is pretty crazy. I mean, he did. Can can you say that Yoshihashi had a better G one than Sonata? Yoshihashi had a better G one than both of those guys. Yeah. So, and, and that should not be the case for a guy that you're pushing as, as a top guy. Agreed. Um, next question here from uh, William Johnson from the Wrestling Square Circle says, so what's Sonata's actual ceiling in NJPW? I think he has everything to be a major player, but I'm thinking the company feels otherwise. I'll even go as far as to say I wouldn't be surprised. It wouldn't surprise me to see him end up in another company, possibly based in the U.S., Remember, I kind of speculated that he might be like Noah Bound or something like that. Right. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but uh, what is his ceiling? Could they ever put the IWGP title on him? Yes. I think that there are scenarios in the space-time continuum where Sonata could win the IWGP title, but at this current time, I don't feel confident that he ever should. Right. I mean, we, we've had Evil as IWGP champion this year, so... Right. Clearly, you know, they're they've kind of slackened up on, you know, who who can hold that title. So is it possible? Yes. Like you said, should he? Probably not. And as far as him going to a US based company, honestly, I I I don't I don't really see WWE wanting him. Maybe they will just to play keep away and to, you know, collect the wrestler like they've been doing for the last few years, but I really don't see them having interest in him and I don't think AEW would really have an interest in him either. So I don't know about, about him going to the U.S. for, you know, kind of a full-time gig. Uh, so next question here from Sir Sam. He says, how far back do we go to find a worse G1 final? 
okay match, but nowhere near the amazing legacy the tournament final has built. Uh, big disagree. Um, I'm guessing, <laughs> and there's going to be people who don't like this answer, but you don't have to go that far back. All you have to do is go back to uh, 20, what, 16? Is that when Kenny won the tournament against Goto? Yeah, Kenny and Goto, yep. Yeah, you go back to 2016, that's a 4.75 star rated match by Dave. It's probably more like four and a half. Um, it's a great match, and it's a great moment, but I don't think it's as lofty as some of the elite fanboys have made it out to be. And I'm not burying that match. I think that match is part of the lofty legacy of the G1. In fact, I'd probably still rate it 4.75, and I'd probably say it's still going to trend ratings-wise a little bit higher than this match. But that's probably the closest comparison you're going to find between the two. Um, If you went back further than maybe like 2013 Naito and Tanahashi – but you don't have to go back that far. I mean, it's like that's what seven years, and you're talking about nothing but four point four and a half to five star matches along the whole time, the whole way. Like, yeah, I don't think this match was just all right. Like, I think that that is crazy. I think this match was great. Yeah, and it's, I think it's kind of like what you said earlier. You know, once you get like a couple five stars in a row, back to back to back. You're you're expecting another five star, and if you believe in the above five, above five, you're expecting something to you know reach that ultimate level. And when it does, when it comes in at four and a half or four point seven five, you're like, ah, this was a disappointment. It's just that there were other matchups in the tournament, like say Okada and Abushi, which got the pass, or Okada and Ishii, or Ishii and Osprey. That should have all been like really fantastic, and they weren't. And people braved about them, and they were way less than this match, you know. And that's kind of like where I'm like, what do we like? It's in the top ten matches of the tournament, but for sure, it's probably top five match of the tournament. Yeah. He also asked, "Was I the only one who caught Sonata's poopy face from the start? I feel like I I knew he was losing from within <laughs> the first five minutes." I didn't pick up. Well, you know, his face always looks like that. So, right, yeah, I didn't. I didn't catch that. But maybe, yeah, maybe he, he he did have a look. You know, he looked like Sasha when she knows she's gonna lose. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe he. he Bro, fu- Sasha always has faces when she knows she's gonna lose. <laughs> you know, so I thought. You know, he thought this was gonna be it. This is gonna be his time, but it's not My to be. My time. My time. <laughs> Yeah, he he was not mid two thousand Triple H. His his time was not now. Gato was like, "Your time is dying." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then last question here um, from on this main event from Dom Homie one hundred and one. Where's Sonata go on from here after the loss in the G one final? I don't know. Um, I've always said on this show. The B block or the the winner in the G1 always gets a major push and usually wins some sort of major singles title at the G or at the Wrestle Kingdom. That's held true for the past, I don't know, four or five years or so. I would imagine they're probably going to do something with him. Um, 
Now, the Power Struggle card doesn't indicate that right now, but we got a lot of time to build to the Tokyo Dome, so, uh, or at least not a lot, but a good amount of time. So, he'll probably be involved in some way with either the IC belt, if they decide to split them, or the Never title, or probably the Never title. I'm guessing, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, Maybe we see him and like Shingo or Suzuki in some aspect for the Never Belt. Or maybe, depending on what happens with that KOPW title, if it actually gains some credibility, maybe we see something going on there. I don't know. Yeah, those are the options. I mean, I, I was going to say maybe potentially the Rev Pro title if they were trying, for some reason, trying to hold off Osprey and Okada for you know, a longer time period. And doing like forgot Sonata, about that doing Sonata Osprey, uh, but I do feel like the the Osprey Okada is something they're they're trying to build up pretty soon. But yeah, like the you never- could open the forbidden door and have him and Cody fight for the TNT title. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! But yeah, it's yeah, it's probably going to be never. I mean, I was trying to think: is there a way for him to do tag titles? Um, I mean, he would have probably have a team up with Shingo. Um, him and, him and Shingo versus Techers? Uh, I don't know. Maybe him and Shingo in the World Tag League. It leads to animosity, and maybe we get them for the Never Belt against one another. I don't know. Yeah. Could happen. We'll see. Well, that's all the questions on that main event. We have a few more G1 questions here, and then we will announce the winner of the contest. We will do grades real quickly. Um, and then we will do uh, MVPs and top 10 matches of the tournament. Um, so first here from Rambo Slam Pigs is after an entire G1 tour with no multi-man tag undercard matches, how can we ever go back to the old way? I was pleasantly surprised to get tag matches back for the world uh, or for the uh, – G1 final, I'm sure by the time World Tag League comes around, I won't feel that same way. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a balance. Like, you know, um, you can't eat steak every day. And that's what we're, we've been doing with the G1. And I'm glad to get something, you know, different to kind of cleanse my palate. I, New Japan does multi-man tags really well. I've never understood the whole thing where people don't like their multi-man tags because they're good. Right, they're they're always good, and they, there's definitely stories that an angle that they build throughout those multi mans that lead to the one on one matches, which makes the one on one matches so special. And they make the singles matches special, like you mentioned, but they they make the the tournaments like the G one and the Super Juniors really special when we go back to like getting nothing but singles. Right. Uh, next question here from Viking Pain with Wrestle Kingdom 15 being two nights again. What do you guys think they plan on doing? I don't know if Naito's body will be able to hold up having two intense main events for the double goal. So do you guys think they split the IC and heavyweight before then? And maybe Stardom will get a bigger spot like this year too. B. Osprey slash Okada Mayu on one of the nights would be great exposure for Stardom. I don't think that they're going to be doing... Personally, I don't think they're going to be doing any stardom stuff on Wrestle Kingdom. Maybe they will. I could be wrong. Um, as far as Will and Okada, I'm just guessing right now we're going to get some sort of singles match between the two at Wrestle Kingdom. And I don't want to book out the whole card, but I mean, 
I don't see that there's enough time right now to split those double titles, uh, especially since we have the Power Struggle card already announced. I do think there is a chance that maybe Okada ends up defending both belts on separate nights. There's also a chance where he does two defenses of both belts, you know, um, provided he wins the first night. So, there, you know, maybe we get a double gold headline the first night, double gold headline the second night. Um, maybe there's also a chance where the I, the double titles only headline one show, and that creates an extra spot for a major match like Okada Osprey or you know Mox Tanahashi or something like that. So there's a lot of things they could do. Um, you got to consider Ibushi in the briefcase and Jay White's coming after that briefcase, and who knows what's going to happen with that between now and then. And maybe we get some sort of mini double gold dash situation once again going into the. Wrestle Kingdom. There's a lot they could do. I, I I really don't know yet. Yeah, I mean, as far as like a potential title match, I I really like Ibushi versus Naito for a dome main event one of the nights. So I'm hoping Ibushi stays with the contract and Naito uh, remains champion. I think that could be a really great uh, dome main event with their history, their style of matchup, and just kind of creating a big moment for Ibushi there. And like you mentioned, if you do just one title match one night, you could you could easily main event with an Okada main event, an Okada grudge match main event, Okada Osprey the other night, and you you load that other card up, you you do the juice, or excuse me, um, the Mox Tanahashi, and you kind of load that second card up with some big matches with the Okada main event, and then maybe on the the, the double title match you can do some more kind of maybe you just where you do the, the tag title match and some other kind of different matches there. You know, and maybe we were working ourselves into a shoot with this whole Ibushi Tanahashi feud that may or may not happen. But you know, World Tag League's coming up; they might be in it. Let's let's just speculate hypothetically. If Golden Aces were like, let's say, to win, they could fight for the titles on night one, while Ibushi is challenging for the double gold the second night. That is something like that is still possible. You know, right. Um, and that would still create, you know, keep the door open for maybe a Tanahashi, uh, Abushi feud down the road. Maybe Abushi wins these golds and then he's got to defend him against the ace, prove himself. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let go of, I'm not going to let go of my, uh, incorrect booking until it actually gets proven that it's not true. Long term storytelling, pal. Also, I don't know what this whole thing is with the Bushi wanting to be a god. Like, it's fucking weird. <laughs> Man's trying to transcend. Yeah, he's trying to be a Super Saiyan or some shit. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if he came out with spiked gold hair? <laughs> uh, does does a, a, a DBZ entrance for Wrestle Kingdom this year? He comes off on a Nimbus cloud. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, he comes out with somebody dressed up as Master Roshi. Yeah. So next question here from our user Hoppy Hair. Now that G1 is over, are there any juniors that you think should have been in the tournament last year? Will Osprey and Chingo were in as juniors, so if so, who would they have replaced? After seeing Show at the finals, I think he should have replaced Yujiro easily and made the tournament better. I mean, if you want Show to eat all those losses, I guess. I mean, it's hard for me to argue with the way they booked the tournament. They booked it really perfectly. 
could the tournament have been made better by putting in Despi, Show, or Hiromu? Maybe, but uh, I'm I'm fine. I was happy with the way it turned out. I don't really have many complaints. I think from a, a match quality standpoint, if you wanted something that some matches that would have peaked higher, I definitely think you could have replaced Show with Yujiro, and with him being a junior. Um, you know, he could eat all those losses to heavyweights, but still have some great matches and kind of this kind of tough, you know, kind of fight to the heavyweights. And it could have done a lot for elevating him in the process. But overall, I mean, those losses could have hurt him as well. So in the long run, so, it, it might have been a better but, thing. But, but Show couldn't have beat Cobb on the last night. Right. You you probably would have had to change the order up there a little bit for somebody. There's, for n- there's no one that Show could have beat. In that A block, there's nobody show could have beat. Yeah. They couldn't do that. I agree with you to a certain extent, but I'm like, eh, they told the story they wanted to tell. If they wanted to put those guys in there, then they would have, you know? Would I love to see Hiromu, like, be in that A block and fuck people up? Sure. But it didn't work out that way. Right. Uh, next question from Maserati. Can you give us some tips on how to avoid spoilers? It seems nowhere is safe. Dude, I I don't know. I got spilled on the A, the B, and the final night, so I'm the wrong person to talk to. <laughs> Man, for me, I, I just turn off notifications for everything. Twitter notifications are off. Discord notifications are off. Messenger notifications are off. YouTube, anything that could potentially spoil me, notifications are getting turned off. I'm not opening any apps that could lead to me getting to a result even on accident. Uh, I'm not getting on any of that stuff until I finish the show. So you just you just gotta stay offline for a little bit, man. Yeah. Uh, Watch next. the shows as soon as you can. Right. <laughs> you can't you can't wait two or three days and be like, oh man, I got spoiled. Well, of course oh, you I got, got spoiled. spoiled. Of course you did, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I waited five days. Uh. Uh, next question from a friend of the show, Dan Coffin. Does it seem like the wrestlers were fresher on their block nights and the shows were easier to watch without all the multi-man tags? Do you hope they keep this format for next year's G1? Uh, I mean, I don't really care. I skip those multi-man tags anyways. <laughs> uh, I think it's probably better for the wrestlers to a certain extent, but, you know, they're in tag matches where they're not doing much in those tag matches and the undercards, but they still oftentimes are able to tell interesting little stories. So, I mean, I don't want to diminish what they do on those off nights, but like, is it easier without the tags? Sure. But, um, yeah, I like the format, but I wouldn't mind the other way. It doesn't really matter to me. Yeah, I mean, personally, I think I really like this this year's format, just focusing on the block matches, two-and-a-half-hour show, kind of get in and out, a real easy watch and just, you know, some great stuff. So if they decided to never go back to the multi-man tag format, I'd be perfectly fine with that. Um, but like you mentioned, those multi-man tags. But, but Jeremy, the, the workers who weren't on the show, they need to get paid, bro. Right, so obviously, you know, your guys like show and... Hiromu and Tangaloa and Hikaleo and all these guys would be doing get Hanare paid <laughs> would be doing undercard stuff and honestly yeah from a business standpoint you know typically you want all the stars on a card 
Um, and so you, you want every town to see Naito. You want every town to see Okada. So you you put them in the multi mans and clearly they're, they're they part. would draw better. They would draw better for sure if the big star if if they got the big stars in tag matches, so that the people can at least see the guys. From a business standpoint, it makes way more sense right to do, and to do the tags. And honestly, with you know limited capacity this year, we really we really don't know how they they would have drawn this format. So. You know, Lord willing, next year we're we're back to you know full capacity. We we don't know how a six match card could draw with them not seeing you know certain guys each night. I'm tired of getting. I don't want 19 takeovers anymore. Next couple of questions here from our man Imp from LOP says the G1 run for Sonata is exactly what I predicted for him. I just had him losing against Jay White. Do you think the elevation of Evil and Sonata has been, been has been working so far? NJBW used a slow horse, but I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's carting out totally along smoothly. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, we, we kind of touched on it earlier in the show. Um I don't know if I have the energy to break down the whole nuances of the two guys, but like, I don't think it's working. I don't think either guy are big stars long-term. Uh, that's not something I felt when they were in the faction, when they're in LIJ, they felt like big stars. And I thought, man, the future is bright for them, but I don't feel that way anymore. Yeah. I mean, for weeks and weeks now and months, we've broken down what we thought about evil and why it's not working. I think earlier on the show, we had a good job kind of breaking down our feelings on Tanada. So yeah, I don't think it's working quite the way they want. I'm sure they're going to, they're going to keep trying to push them and keep them in some top spots, but they're not two people. I'm trying to, you know, bank the future of this company on. Here's one thing I will say. Sonata losing like seven or eight times to Okada, especially in all like, Turn, like title matches and then like in tournament final matches that doesn't help right <laughs> Sonata losing all the tournament finals he's ever been in that doesn't help and Sonata all the guys that Sonata has beat being guys who've all beaten him in the past pretty emphatically and easily that doesn't help I've, I I don't have any reason to believe that he's a big star because I mean he He's been beaten like he's not a big star. Right. And he don't carry himself like he's one anyways. Uh, so the second question says, oh, on day two, at, oh, in two-day Wrestle Kingdom, what are they going to fill it with this time? Double Naito Duty, IWGP Junior Main Event, Doki's Big Day Out? We'll have to wait and see. There's a lot of options. Yeah, we, we kind of speculated a little bit with that, that earlier question on some on stuff they can do. But, yeah, I mean – it's still we're still in October and we still got a few more months to kind of get that final build. But yeah, you know, a junior main event of Hiromu versus somebody could could be very interesting. Um, I thought last year would have been a great year to have done a, a junior main event. So maybe they they do something like that this year. Um, they won't. They won't. They don't have the right guys to do it this year. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think last year was like the peak moment for it. I don't know who like. Hiromu Despi, I don't think that would be like a big main event. I don't know who Hiromu could face that would be like that that huge. So we'll I can't think of a single foil out there in the world that would be a big draw 
against Des- or against Hiromu, so I couldn't see them headlining with the junior title for Wrestle Kingdom this year. You know, now that we're talking about Hiromu, I know we were talking about like Naito and how how they could do two title matches. Maybe you do the the Naito Abushin match on one night, and then maybe like that's the second night and the night before Naito, you know, kind of gives us that Hiromu match that we wanted. And he defends against Hiromu. Or does a non-title match. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a big deal. Um, then last question here from Dom Homie 101. Is, is it me or does it feel that both Jay White and Evil's eventual role is to be top babyfaces instead of heels? Evil and Jay White? Yeah. Uh, I don't. I used to feel Jay was going to turn... And be this great baby face because I know he's capable of it. But at this point, he's such a good heel. I don't know if he ever really actually turns. But um, who knows? Maybe I'm speaking prematurely. That might be exactly what they're doing with this uh, Bullet Club feud. But um, I feel that way more about like Sonata and Evil. I think that they have aspirations to turn Sonata and Evil into big stars for the company come hell or high water, they're going to push those two guys. They've invested a lot in them. They've shown that they're, you know, like uh, one of the questions earlier said, like they're in it for the the long haul. They're going to keep going with these guys. Like this is not the end. Like we're going to see one of these guys. These guys are going to win titles. They're going to win tournaments and they're going to get pushed and they're going to get opportunities. Like unless something changes drastically. Right. I, I, I don't think of evil, the, the eventual roles top eight face. Maybe it could be, but I definitely still feel that way about Jay. I think eventually he's going to turn baby face. It might not be this year. It might not be next year, but I think eventually we're going to get that Jay White baby face run and kind of see that fire that we saw when he was on excursion in Ring of Honor when he was a young lion. I think it's going to be great. And so that wraps up those uh, last G1 questions there. Uh, we got to announce the winner of the G1 contest. It was a hot and heated contest down to the very last day. But congrats to our winner, Reddit user Adam Pro 123 You are this year's Keeping a Strong Style G1 contest winner. I will be following up with you via email to get everything squared away with your prizes. So uh, congrats on winning the contest, and shout-out to everybody who uh, participated in this year's contest. Um, you know, some, some good tries, but it was only, like they say, you got to be the one. Only one could survive, and that was Adam Pro 1-2-3. Adam Pro is just better than you all. It's not his fault. <laughs> Adam Pro, baby. Adam Pro, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so now, real quickly, we're going to give our grades for each competitor in the G1. We'll start with the A block. We'll start from the top, work our way down to the bottom, do the same thing for the B block. So starting at the top, Kota Abushi, the G1 winner. Uh, I got to go. I'm going to go just solid A. Wait, are are we doing like pluses and minuses, or are we just doing straight up letter grades? Yeah, we're gonna do the, we're gonna do the pluses and minuses. I've, I'm almost inclined to go a minus, but that, I'm almost grading against the curve with him, so I'm just gonna go solid solid A. One of the top three guys in the entire tournament, just incredible. Yeah, I'm also gonna go a uh, 
Flat A with Kota Ibushi. So then next up, we got Jay White. Jay White, I'm going to give a solid B. I'm not going plus or minus with Jay. Jay didn't always perform up to the level that I know he's capable of, but he did it often enough and was solid enough in so many matches to where I thought he had a very enjoyable, very solid and good tournament, and he could have fucked off, but he didn't, so I'm going to go B. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. Definitely could have had a better tournament. He could have gotten to that that A range there, but didn't quite get there. So, yeah, I'm going to go B also with Jay White. Next up, we got Will Ospreay. Will Ospreay, I am inclined. See, it's a tough one. I'm going to go B- minus mm. with Will. I'm almost inclined to go C+. Plus, and the really? reason why is I know. Huh? Really? C+. Plus? You think I'm C+. Plus? I mean, I, I won't go there because Will did have – the thing is just like it's hard because it's like if Jay White had had Will Ospreay's tournament, I would be going A. But because Will Ospreay had Will Ospreay's tournament, I'm like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, Will still was great. Uh, he answered a lot of questions about what he would be like with this extra weight and that heavyweight. And I, I still enjoyed his tournament, but more often than not, I was disappointed at how good I thought the matches could be. Um, his claim as to being the best wrestler in the world was thwarted in my opinion in this tournament. Um, I, I, I couldn't possibly actually consider him to be the wrestler of the year or the rest or the best wrestler in the world at this time based on this tournament. Um, he still did really good. I'm going to go B minus. All right. I'm going to go B plus. Uh, I still thought he had a great tournament, but like you mentioned, there were some matches that quite didn't live up to the hype um, that could have taken him to that A level, but I still thought he had an awesome tournament. So going B plus. Um, next up, Kazuchika Okada. Hmm. Um, very similar to my thoughts on Will. I don't know where to go. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go C plus. Mm, I'm gonna go B minus. Um, I know he did not live up to you know the Okada standard, but I still think there were some great matches in there. I mean, he's still having some four star matches. Um, there were some, but there were some that were actually bad, and that is so unlike. This is the worst Okada G one of all time. Um, I'm going. I have to go C plus because I can't reward this man with a B. He just. I don't care if it's storyline. I don't care. Like C plus. <laughs> All right. Next up, the Stone Pit Bull Tomohiro Ishii. Uh, I'm going A plus for Tomohiro Ishii. Yeah, easily A plus. Uh, next up, Tai Chi. Oh, Tai Chi, I'm going to go A minus. Mm. I could go B plus, but um, I'm going to go A minus for the man because he just fucking ruled. Yeah, I think I'm going to go A minus as well. Just had an incredible tournament. So next up, uh, Mr. Athletic, Jeff Cobb. I will go. I'm going to begrudgingly give him a B, B minus. I could go lower, but I do think this man improved and increased and turned things around towards the end. 
But I don't know. I'm I'm kind of torn. I could go C plus. It's hard. Uh, where are you at? I'm going C plus. Like all right, let's go C plus. <laughs> like I mean, he, he had a, a fine tournament. There there he did have some good matches, but some matches are just kind of like there. And yeah, we've talked about it enough. But yeah, I, yeah, C plus for me. So next up, the dragon Chingo Takagi. A plus. Yeah, Chingo was awesome. Him and Ishii just. Having bangers left and right, A plus for the dragon here. Um, second to the last here, the never open weight champion, the king Minoru Suzuki. Um, I'm gonna go solid B. I could even maybe go B plus with Suzuki. Just a, a fantastic tournament. Yeah, I think I think I'm going B plus. I, I really enjoyed a lot of stuff he was doing in this tournament. So yeah, I'm gonna this go. this block is incredible. Yeah. And then last but not least, the Tokyo Pimps, Yujiro Takahashi. I know people are thinking, oh, here comes the bad grade, the F, they're going with the D. I think I'm going just straight C. Um, yeah, you know? yeah, I give him a flat C. He passed. He he, honestly didn't have too many, if any, actually bad matches. He had just solid good matches. Some of them even got to very good, and he was the prelim guy like every night. So, all right, moving on to the B block. So the B block winner, Sonata. C. Yeah. I gave him a flat C as well. Um, then we got the King of darkness evil. I'll go C. Yep. I'll give him a C as well. Then we got the, uh, double champion Tetsuya Naito. I'll go B for Naito. Naito actually had a pretty good tournament. Yeah, he did. So, yeah, I think a, a flat B is perfect for him. Uh, then we have the number one contender for the U.S. title, Kenta. Kenta, I'm going to go B minus. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, B minus for Kenta. He had some good matches, some not so good matches. It wasn't his best tournament, but he came out pretty good, so. Next up, we got one half of the IWGP Tag Team Champions, Zack Sabre Jr. Zack's an interesting one because he didn't trend super high when it comes to ratings and stuff, but overall I thought he was one of the stronger competitors in the tournament. I'll go B. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, a flat B for Sabre. Next up, the ace of the universe, Roshi Tanahashi. I'm going to go... I could go. I'm gonna go B plus. I I don't think there's quite enough there to go full A. I could if I did. I'm gonna have to go A minus, but at least B plus. He's my top guy in the B block. Yeah, if he had one or two more like really high level bangers, I think you, you could have snuck, snuck him in with an A minus. But I'm I'm also or or if some of the matches he had that were great were just greater. Mm, yeah. Um. But yeah, I'll, I'll go with um B. Um. You want B minus? I want B plus. B plus, yeah. So I'm thinking, yeah, B plus. Uh, next up, the flamboyant Juice Robinson. C. Yeah, we'll go with C for him. Uh, Hiroki Goto. C. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, Toro Yano, the lineal provisional KOPW champion. C. Uh, I give him. I give him a C plus. All right, let's go C plus Yano. <laughs> beat some people. Uh, and then last but not least, one third of the never open weight six man champions, Yoshihashi. B. 
Uh, I could go B minus. Uh, I yeah, I go I go flat B for Yoshiashi. Yoshiashi had the tournament of his life. He turned his life around. Yeah, he turned. Yep, that's the saying, right? Turned it around. So now let's talk about the MVPs. So for the A block MVP, we're giving it to the Stone Pitbull Tomohiro Ishii. Yeah, if you take a look across the grades, um, all the major publications, grading sites, specifically, you know, Observer, Cage Match, Grapple, emphatically, they all rated Ishii as having eight out of his nine tournament matches above four stars, which is, like, unheard of. And the one match that he didn't get four stars on was the match with Yujiro, which happened to be Yujiro's best match of the tournament. So, I mean, this man just freaking was a monster, just killed it, delivered every single night. Um, now, there are some considerations when it comes to Ishii. Ishii is not only our A-block MVP, but he is also the G1 MVP. The two people in the block that could have given him a run for his money... Um, Kota Ibushi, um, especially considering the final, as well as Shingo Takagi. Those are like the two closest guys in terms of overall performance. The one, the couple arguments you might have is specifically when it comes to who gave who their best matches. And even though Ishii had eight matches out of nine above four stars. He didn't trend as high in terms of peaking as he normally does. Whereas Abushi and um, Shingo might've actually peaked higher in the tournament in overall matches than he did, but they didn't perform as consistently great on a high level as Ishii did. The other um, thing is when you look at, you know, who gave who their best matches, um, Shingo gave three people in the block their best match of the tournament, as well as Ishii. That's the most of that block. But the difference there is that Ishii gave the best matches to some of the guys that were lower on the card. So, like, he gave Cobb and Yujiro their best matches, which might actually downtrend a little bit from, like, Shingo giving, like, say, Okada <laughs> his best match or or Osprey. So... Shingo definitely peaked higher in this tournament than Ishii did. But with that being said, it's hard to deny the overall greatness that Ishii performed at where he still had out of the top 10 matches of the tournament. He had four of the top 10 matches of the tournament, which is the most of anybody in the entire tournament. And he just performed at a consistently higher level than anybody else. And, are we surprised? This is like the third year of the three years we've been covering the G1 on this podcast. This is the third year where Ishii's either the guy or one of the top two guys for MVP of the tournament. Like he's he's the best and he's not showing any signs of slowing down. Yeah. Ishii's just a freaking machine. I love the guy and just goes out there and kills it. Whether he's gonna get six points, eight points, whatever the it doesn't matter. Like he like he told us in Dallas, he loves, loves to smash and that's he exactly loves to smash exactly what he did here in this tournament so you know shout out to the stone pitbull a block mvp and the overall g130 mvp 
And then for our B Block MVP, we're going with the ace of the universe, Hiroshi Tanahashi. Yeah, the interesting thing with Tanahashi is um, we kind of espouse the idea that Yoshihashi might actually be the B Block MVP for most of our coverage, but turns out that the two highest polling or highest performing guys match quality wise in that block were actually Naito and Tanahashi. If you take a look at all of their matches and you know add them together and then divide them, you're going to get a, a match average performance that's actually just barely higher for Naito than it is for Tanahashi, which doesn't sound right. But when you consider that Tanahashi's lowest performing match and one of uh, Naito's better performing matches is they're both Yano matches. If you take that Yano match out, which almost should be considered like an anomaly (laughs) you're going to find that tanahashi trends in traditional matches against top guys in the tournament much higher than anybody else he also averaged around a 3.75 to four star match average throughout the tournament which is you know exceptionally high for the b block and he gave five different performers in the block their best match of the tournament, which is the most of anybody in the G1 this year. And he had five matches of the night this year, which is the most of anybody in the tournament. So he's widely and easily the B block MVP and, you know, probably would have just murdered it had he been in the A block. Oh man. If he was in the A block, that would have been incredible. So now we're going to list the top 10 matches of the tournament. So how we picked the 10 matches, we uh, did the average from, we took the star ratings from Grapple, Cage Match, the Observer Newsletter, and then my ratings and Josh's ratings. Josh did the math on that and got the 10 matches. We then uh, put it in the order that we felt it should be in. And here's the thing, guys. A lot of these matches on this list are Four and a half. You could easily flip flop them around in any position, but these are the top ten matches. If you have not seen them yet, these are the matches you need to watch. These are probably the matches that you'll want to rewatch um, later on in the year, especially uh, as we get ready to um, roll into award season. So um, coming in at number ten, we got Switchblade J White versus Tomohiro Ishii. Coming in at number nine, we have Shingo Takagi versus Tomohiro Ishii. At number eight, Minoru Suzuki versus Kota Ibushi. Number seven, Taichi versus Kota Ibushi. Number six, Sonata versus Kota Ibushi. Number five, Minoru Suzuki versus Tomohiro Ishii. Number four, Tomohiro Ishii versus Kota Ibushi. Number three, Shingo Takagi versus Kazuchika Okada. Number two, Tanahashi versus Tetsuya Naito. And then our top match of the G1 Climax 30 is Shingo Takagi versus Will Ospreay. So that is our top 10 match of the tournament. And it's pretty much in line with the consensus of what people think are the top 10 of this tournament. And I'm sure you'll be seeing these listed um, for match of the year contenders and fight of the year contenders as we get ready to roll into award season. And the the last big show that's really going to kind of cap off our eligibility for awards is Power Struggle. 
And we did have the the Power Struggle card announced at the post-G1 press conference. So we are going to have Toro Yano defending his lineal provisional KOPW 2020 championship against Zack Sabre Jr. Then there will be a never open weight championship match with Minoru Suzuki defending against the Dragon Shingo Takagi. We will have Kazuchika Okada taking on the Great Okan. Then we will have Kenta defending his IWGP US Heavyweight Title Shot contract against Hiroshi Tanahashi. And then in the semi-main event, the Golden Star Kota Ibushi will defend his Wrestle Kingdom 15 title shot against the Switchblade Jay White. And then in the main event of the evening, we will have the IWGP Heavyweight and IWGP Intercontinental Championship match as Hatsuya Naito defends both titles against the King of Darkness, Evil. And we did have a question here from Dom Homie 101. Thoughts on the Power Struggle card? What matches are you guys looking forward to? What would a gimmick match like a cage match? What a gimmick match like a cage match improve the matchup between Naito and Evil? And thoughts on Tanahashi versus Kenta? Uh, I like this card quite a bit. Uh, it seems to be the logical steps you would take after what we just saw at the finals. Not a big fan of watching Evil and Naito again. But other than that, pretty excited. As far as KOPW, I have no idea what they could do. Probably some tape gimmick, some shit like that. Um, Tanahashi and Kenta uh, should be good. Uh, every match they've had together is good. Tanahashi may well, – we'll give our predictions later, but you know, there's an opportunity for Tanahashi to kind of steal this big opportunity from Kenta, which – I don't know. I'm not always. I don't like these op- championship opportunities getting defended because he won that in a tournament. Seems stupid to lose it after you won it in a tournament. I don't know. Right. Uh, overall, I think overall I like the card. Like you, I don't. I'm not a big fan of another Naito Evil main event. You know, maybe a gimmick match could could you know freshen things up and change some things around with those guys. But at this point, I'm just so tired of seeing these two wrestle each other. I, I don't know what could really help. And like you said, yeah, Tanahashi and Kenta matches are always good. Uh, I think, you know, last year's G1 match between them was really great. Uh, this year wasn't quite at that level, but I think, you know, one more shot here at Power Struggle, they can have a, another really great match up here. You know, I thought he was talking about the KOPW match, not the main event. If they're going to do the main event, they should just do no DQ. Right. Yeah, you're, you're going to have, you know, Dick Togo and ref bumps and all those interferences. Scratch that, yeah, just no DQ and just let you know let everything fly. Maybe that will actually make the match better. We'll see. Uh, next question here from Ready the PSA ninety one says, "Do you think we see either Jay winning the right to challenge for the IWGP Heavyweight slash ITC title briefcase from Ibushi, and or Tanahashi winning the right to challenge the U.S. title briefcase from Kenta?" I'm going to power struggle with a couple of friends, and we are all excited for both matches. As there seems to be more of a chance than in a normal year that someone loses the right to challenge for the title belts. Um, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think because they've announced the double um, Wrestle Kingdom Day stipulation again, and we don't have a quote-unquote double gold dash going on, there is a good possibility that Abushi maybe loses the briefcase and still gets a title shot come Wrestle Kingdom, 
a la Naito last year. Um, same thing with Kenton Tanahashi. I mean, there's a good chance that both of those opportunities could switch hands. Yeah, for I, I, I feel like the Tanahashi winning the briefcase from Kenta is the more likely scenario. I can definitely see, like you mentioned, Obushi losing to Jay to set up, you know, Jay White versus Naito one night and then Naito versus Obushi the other night. Kind of similar, like you mentioned, the way they did last year to kind of, you know, build up Naito. Um, but, yeah, for some reason, I mean, uh, Moxley versus Tanahashi just seems like a bigger match to me than Moxley versus Kenta. So I could see them switching the briefcase so they can do Tanahashi versus Moxley. I mean, it's the same thing. Maybe you end up with Mox defending against Kenta and Tanahashi and getting, you know, two Mox singles matches um, that, that um, those days of January 4th and 5th. So we'll see what happens there. And then uh, last question here from Highest Fly Flow between Juice, Little K, and Tanahashi. Who do you want to see hold the new, the, hold the U.S. New Japan Cup briefcase? I really don't want Juice in the scene. Kenta is hit or miss with his matches, and I think Tanahashi would be awesome. I'm also very biased in favor of Tana, so I want to know what you thought. I mean, outside of a Okada match, a Tanahashi match is the most appealing for a future, you know, Mox fight in New Japan that hasn't happened yet. So I have to go to Tanahashi. Yeah, Tanahashi would definitely be most the most interesting. I think that's you know kind of the big money match there of Tanahashi and Moxley. It would really help you know lift the prestige of that U.S. title to have somebody like Tanahashi challenging for it and even potentially winning the U.S. title. I could see Tanahashi being U.S. champion, especially at this point in his career. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hoping for Tanahashi to some even if he doesn't win the briefcase and still get a U.S. title shot. And so that wraps up those uh, questions for Power Struggle. Um, real quick, NJPW Strong had its never uh, tour kickoff this past Friday. We had Mysterioso defeating Danny Limelight. We had Hikaleo defeating TJP. PJ Black defeated Alex Zane. And Jeff Cobb and David Finley defeated the Bull Club team of Kenta and Chase Owens. Uh, this coming up Friday, we'll have Fred Rosser versus Clark Connors, ACH versus Carl Fredericks. We'll have Jay White versus Rocky Romero, and Jeff Cobb and David Finley versus the Gorilla the Destiny of Tangaloa and Tamatonga. And then that's going to take us to the one um, major news item to talk about here. Um, and this comes. Um, was revolving around Will Ospreay and um, the statement put out from IWL on the whole um, Pollyanna situation. Um, so I'm pulling up their tweet right now. Uh, so they said, uh, this should be a moment where we should stand united in support of those affected by the death of Ryan Smile instead of some are ripping, r- ripping it into Will Ospreay to avoid any misconception we have to clarify something. Will did not contact us directly about unbooking Polly. The venue did. Uh, regardless of your opinion about him, no mistake justifies the hate that Will constantly gets. It's shameful that some people stop at nothing. What I am asking for is for people to be more considerate of others. Be kind. Um, and so we had a question here from Reddit user Viking Pains. It's recently it's been revealed that Will Osprey did not get Pollyanna banned from IWL 
like many had accused him of doing. The man isn't the sharpest tool in the shed, but him being lumped in with guys like Velveteen Dream and Joey Ryan from the beginning in the speaking out movement has been completely asinine from the get-go. His name has been driven through the mud, his reputation tarnished, and he's been cyberbullied, so he's left Twitter itself. I know it doesn't have anything to do with G1, but you guys have a larger voice in the wrestling community, especially New Japan, and I was hoping to hear your thoughts on it and for you to shine more light on the matter since there's still a lot of people out there who haven't heard of IWL's recent statement. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I It's kind of a confusing thing, to be honest, but uh, honestly, they didn't say anything different from what they said initially. And this is kind of going to confuse people, but they said the same thing that they said the first time. The only difference was a context of what they were implying, but the actuality of what they said remained the same. Let's be clear. The first time that they uh, gave their account, they implied that Will Ospreay had caused Pollyanna to get unbooked via them. And then they literally wrote in their tweet, fuck you, Will Ospreay. Right. (laughs) Then, they came out this other time and said, we need to clarify, Will never called us directly. You know, it was the, uh, they're saying it was the event place where they're holding it that did it. But the first time that they gave their account, they never said Will Ospreay did it. They said that they were actually reached out to via the venue and the venue told them that Will Ospreay is our boy and that's why we want Pollyanna gone. And that's what they said to her in the email. It is the same account. Nothing changed. The only thing is this time they're trying to make it sound like Will had nothing to do with it. But they haven't said anything. To me, that sounds like they actually cleared him aside from just their intentions of what they wrote. Um, I think it's high. I think it's super suspect. I think it's super, super, super suspect. Why would you write an email the first time that says, this guy, we were told for you know secondhand by people directly close to him that he wanted this girl gone, and then write "fuck you, Will Osprey," and then turn around and be like, "Well, guys, we really need to clarify. He didn't directly do it. You guys never said he directly did it, you know." And I don't, I don't have a dog in the race. I don't care if he did or not personally, but I'm just telling you what it sounds like. It doesn't sound like he didn't have anything to do with it. It doesn't sound like they dragged his name through the mud and he didn't deserve it. Sounded like her account lined up with their account and others' accounts, and now they're backtracking for whatever reason. And what I do know is wrestling is a super scummy, grimy business where not saying someone paid him off or affected them, but could that happen because it's wrestling? Happens every day. Backhanded deals, glad handings, and I think it's super suspect that they decided to retract their story a day before the dudes in in the about to get this major push with Rev Pro where I think it's suspect. I think it's super suspect. Yeah, there's definitely something weird going on here. Um, like you mentioned, my thoughts are very similar to yours. Like I I went back and saw like the previous statements they made, saw what they said about Osprey and the venue and pretty much what they're saying now and yeah, it's, they've definitely kind of changed their their tone on Osprey. Like you mentioned, now they're they're you know trying to put him over and you know trying to make you know trying to clear his name here, and it just seems really weird that 
their stance would have changed all of a sudden, unless there's something we're missing, like there's some information that that got told of them that made them change their mind, or like you said, like did somebody try and pay them off? The funny thing is there's people on one side who like hate Will and just want his demise, and we're like, you know, and also, you know, for other, and I'm not saying that, that that's the only motivation. There's people who are very genuine who are upset about, you know, what he had allegedly done. But there's people who wanted that to be so true, and then there's people who didn't want it to be true, and then heard this come out and are like jumping on it, and not looking at like the reality of the situation is that this is super fishy, you know, to be like, oh, this cleared him. Uh, To me, this does not clear him, you know, like at all. Why would you? Why would they have posted the first post like they posted like that, (laughs) and come to the aid of of Pollyanna, you know, and then completely backtracked 180 you know the tone and the um intent behind what they're saying it's just fucking weird yeah well that wraps it up for what we had in the news because a lot of what we covered the g1 stuff was all the the big news related stuff with power struggle and wrestle kingdom Uh, i will say one other thing before we go i don't know if he definitely for sure did this or not but there's like six or seven other really fucking scummy, terrible things that Will has done in the past that are widely known. So it's like this man ain't off the hook. It's not like suddenly he's a saint and he, you know, he's not. Right. So we did have a few off-topic questions here. Do you want to run those real quick or you want to punt them to next week? Yeah, let's push those off to next week and just close out because it's been a long show. Yep, so last thing we'll end here with is the recommended match of the week. So last week I had us watching Kazuchika Okada versus Tomohiro Ishii from G1 Climax 26, night 13, August 6, 2016. Your thoughts on the matchup? I, <laughs> you know what's funny is I, I saw the match back in the day when it first occurred. And, um, you know, I, th- I, I remembered loving it. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to still love it. And it's just going to be so great. I didn't anticipate how much better I thought it would be on second viewing. (laughs) It's it's so incredible, bro. Like the second time I viewed this, um, do you think I'm off? Do you think I'm um, out of line saying that this match is better than anything in this G1? No, I mean, this match is like five stars. Yeah, I think this match is better than anything that you'll see that we saw in this entire G1, which is funny because the current narrative is just how much wrestling has improved over this time period. And to some extent, that is true. But keep in mind, a lot of these great workers have been great for a long time, especially top guys like like an Ishii and Okada. And, you know, give them four years of their youth back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they worked at a pace that was just so fucking insane. And I saw people talking about how the match they had this G1 was the best match they ever had. Go watch this 2016 match. It never stops. It never lets up. Um, The stakes that were involved, the fact that, like, they were one day away from the actual block finals. Um, Ishii, like, trying to prove, you know, something to himself and to the New Japan audience and to, you know, his stable leader and just never letting up and just being like this rabid Wolverine, the entire or rabid dog, just uh, the stone pit bull, just trying to fuck up Okada and Okada, like not knowing how to like solve the puzzle and going, 
toe to toe with Ishii and uh, Ishii knowing all of Okada's spots and just like countering him every single time he goes to do something that like Ishii knows. And then they made it look like Ishii was just going to be this like plucky underdog who pushed him to the limits but doesn't get the job done. And then he does beat him. And you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's it's one of the greatest G1 matches ever. It's it's incredible. Um, There might be something to this idea that like we are a little bit past a peak in New Japan because I mean this so this style, this is what drew people to this product years ago and people are still coming and stuff. But like if you, if you're watching now and you haven't gone back and watched what was going on in 2015, 2016, 2017, like you really are missing out. This is, this match was something special and it, it improved watching it again. Yeah. Awesome matchup. And the crowd. Yeah. Just, yeah. The, cra- the crowd is rabid the entire time, the whole match. It's crazy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that match definitely made me miss like the crowd being able able to cheer and getting to the match in a full capacity crowd. So it made me miss Don Callis. <laughs> oh man, the golden announcer. <laughs> Don, the best line of the match. He was like, you know, Okada wasn't a young was in that young lion system not too long ago. I bet you Ishii abused him when he. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. Missed on. So my my recommended match of the week is going to be the often heralded classic legendary 2001 G1 finals between Yuji Nagata and Kiji Muto. Nice. Yuji Nagata from WCW. From WCW. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds like a great recommended uh, match of the week to watch Keep us in that, that G1 season Give us a little more G1 flavor As we get ready to roll into This uh, Road to Power Struggle Tour Well that's going to wrap everything up So next week we'll be back to review The Road to Power Struggle shows That will be happening and give our predictions For the Power Struggle show Coming up on uh, November 7th So if you enjoyed today's show Please consider making a donation by visiting Socialsuitbucks.com slash donate only donate button under the keeping it strong style logo make sure you connect with us on social media on twitter i'm at jeremy l donovan the show is at ki strong style follow our network at social suplex on facebook group facebook.com slash social suplex also find us in the wrestling square circle facebook group facebook.com slash group slash wrestling square circle on instagram we're at social suplex on reddit i'm the pro black guy josh is keeping it strong style you can email me, Jeremy, at socialsuplex.com. Check out all the other shows here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We have Funnishing Radio with Rich Latta and James Boyd. We have the Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show from Scotland. We have Grown Men Watch This Shit. We have the Grave Consequences Podcast with Caleb and Malarati. We have 8-Bit Suplex with Josh Number 2 and Sid, Sandy. And we have All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating oh, and wait. review. Real quick, um, I was recently this evening on the Grave Consequences podcast that you just mentioned with uh, Caleb and Greg Maserati. Um, we did a review of the Aztec Warfare episode of Lucha Underground, which will be coming out on um october 29th so if you get a chance be sure to check me out on that episode coming dropping in about 10 days 
and um, give those guys a listen because it's our newest, hottest, you know, podcast. That's right. Check out all the shows here on the network. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Golden Star. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.